So Frank here. I'm here with me, Peter. That wasn't quite Hi, right. Peter. It's it's me, Peter. No. <laughs> you didn't exactly. lead me in properly. I know because we're just doing this as a little extra bit to go right at the start of this episode. You might guess from the description or the title that this is an interview with Maxine Newman, who at the time of the interview was the lead <laughs> designer for Arkham Horror: The Card Game. But... Peter, why are we recording an extra bit? <laughs> well, I think considering that introduction, it's quite obvious. Maxine yeah. has is, is moving on, and the Scarlet Keys is her last product. I think was what mm-hmm. what, what the statement mm-hmm. said. So yeah. yeah, unbeknownst to us, we were doing maybe not quite a swan song interview with with Maxine, but certainly on the wind down of her time with Arkham. Bearing in mind that the team work quite a bit ahead of time. Uh, so mm-hmm. Maxine's involvement with the game has probably been done for a while now, if she's not working on any more products. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yes. We didn't know at the time, so we didn't ask her yeah. any questions about it. Hopefully, and we also recorded this before she could announce it, so she yes. didn't tell us we weren't hiding it. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It will be interesting for us, I think, to listen back to what she says and see if we can pick up any clues about what's going to happen <laughs> during, well, during and, the interview. And off air... I said to her, so you must be two cycles ahead now, because she's normally two ahead. Mm-hmm. There's whichever one's announced, and then she's on the next one. And she said something like, oh, yeah, something like that. <laughs> and at the time, I was like, oh, okay, you know, she obviously can't talk about what's not been announced. So I, I'm not, I wasn't asking her for information. I was just making conversation. Now I see that comment in a new light. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So yeah, so this is an interview that we conducted with her before we knew, before she could tell us. So take everything with, I guess, a big grain of salt. And as ever with these interviews, I like to start by asking her about the team. And I ask her about, is she the head of the team? (laughs) She's somewhat coy. (laughs) I remember that part. So yeah, what can we say? And Peter, how are you feeling about her announcement? We don't have to go into a lot of detail now. Any immediate reaction to hearing that she's moving on? Well, and a lot of people said they were more upset than they thought they were going to be. I think you, you kind of fell into that camp. It hit you yeah, a bit harder absolutely. than you expected. Mm-hmm. I, I've been in card games where leads have come and gone in the past. I think the thing with Arkham, and, and I tried to articulate this on our Discord, it's it feels like a very solid platform. Mm-hmm. I mean, due to the work of the team and of Maxine so far. Yeah. You can play... You know the, the the way things slot together, the camp the, the the campaign side of it slots together separately from the player card side of it. I get the feeling that Maxine has been more or less involved in different aspects of of the game anyway. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it it was already a team effort, and I think I guess just excitement really, excitement to see what personality the the new team put into their product. Mm-hmm. And excitement to see what Maxine's going to be working on next. I think broadly positive, thankful for all the work that Maxine's done and the support she's given content creators like us. Mm-hmm. And yeah, excited to see what happens next. How about yourself? Are you are you similar? Yeah, I am. I am excited. Yeah, and I, despite what we say on the cast, I am quite a big fan of Nick's design. I think Excelsior is a fantastic scenario. It's so a I'm really, really excited scenario, yeah. to see what he creates and also a big fan of duke and love the energy that duke's bringing so i'm not the sadness was definitely not in any way aimed at who was coming next Mm. i think it's i was trying to think about what made me sad about it i think it's partly 
she's been such a fixture with the game. Mm-hmm. It's been so solid. A little bit like the Queen dying. People <laughs> being surprised that they were upset when, when the Queen died. Don't know how she feels because... about that comparison. Yeah, she might be she might be horrified by that. But that idea of someone who was so synonymous with a, a thing with being a part of your life that even if you weren't close to that person it was like when you think of Arkham you know that Maxine has this what seems like limitless imagination passion for it real love of challenging players real sense of pushing the boundaries all of that kind of thing and the feeling of losing that is I think sad I think funnily enough I don't feel bad for feeling sad I, I think that's okay Like I think it's a big change for the game and that brings a great degree of uncertainty and just a sense that things that felt unchanging are actually changing so that's okay but I am also excited about what next and she does say I don't think it's on air I think it's off air she said you should interview Duke yeah yeah <laughs> such a pointed comment isn't yeah, it to yeah. say like hey oh, he's been on our list yeah. for ages oh yeah we've got a really good plan for for interviewing other members of FFG it's just finding the time isn't it absolutely yeah Anyway, without further ado, please enjoy this interview with Maxine Newman, who at the time of recording was the lead designer. She's still the lead designer of of Arkham Horror, the card game, the living card game. Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. We're sometimes fortnightly, we're sometimes monthly. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Excited once again, because I get to say, and we're joined by... Uh, It's me, Maxine. (laughs) Hi, Maxine. How's it going? I think I do that gag every time, and I always say that, and it's me also. Yes. <laughs> it's an important part. Yeah. yeah. A lot of our listeners say they just listen for you to do that, and then they, they suck off the other two hours of recording. Oh, do they? <laughs> do they? No, literally no one said that. <laughs> please, please, please stay with us. <laughs> it's a highlight, though, right? Everyone's used to It's Me Peter, but who's used to It's Me Maxine? So, yeah, we're joined by Maxine Newman, who's a senior game designer. I think uh, that's your yeah. title now. That's my title. Yeah. We got it right for once at FFG. And I guess, are you the Arkham lead? Do you get called the lead? Uh, Queen of Arkham? That's, it's, I guess like that's kind of more of an external facing title than an internal okay. title. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like on, on specific products, there'll be a lead developer um, okay, but it's not like it's not so much a job title. It just happens to yeah. be that I've been the lead developer for every Arkham product that has been made so far. <laughs> okay. Wait, well, okay. that's not true, <laughs> with the exception of um, certain standalone scenarios. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It de- it definitely feels like I was going to say it. It feels like you the team is growing. Uh, certainly, it's a lot more visible publicly. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And you'll get to see all of us interact together on a live stream next week, which will probably oh, have already happened by the time this episode comes out. <laughs> Almost certainly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How are you feeling about the team growing? Or is that just the public perception that it's growing, but it's always had lots of people involved? Oh, it's definitely, it, de- it definitely is growing. 
It's, it's, if, well, it feels great because the people who I wanted to join the team joined the team. <laughs> so it kind of like just worked out exactly the way I wanted almost. So I'm like, wow. dance, puppets, dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, like, that's a really good feeling. Mm-hmm. And is there more to do in terms of sort of managing that people are working on the right streams or is that not, you know, to go from one chef to four chefs? Yeah, it has been, it has been like, I don't know, different, not like worse or, or better or complicated, but just like different. It's a different feeling. When I was working on like Dunwich and Carcosa and Forgotten Age uh, and Circle and Dun, like all the way up to Dream Eaters, I basically worked alone. And to a certain extent, that was cool because it meant I didn't have to, you know, answer to anyone. I just kind of like did whatever I wanted. And there were people above me that I had to like, you know, answer to. But I never had to like share my creative vision with someone else and have them be like, uh, but what if that's bad? You know what I mean? Mm, yeah, yeah. But now, but um, the downside to that, of course, is you didn't have that other person to be like the check to your balance, you know? Or mm -hmm. that's not the phrase, but but now I have multiple people, <laughs> and that's good because uh, it means we're gonna get sort of like more refined um, scenarios and cards and stuff like that. Investigators, hi kitty. Mm. There's a kitty. This is Eris. Hi Eris, come here. Okay, she doesn't. Now she doesn't want to talk. She only wants to talk when I'm talking. <laughs> I have a, a rotating, when I'm working, I have a rotating procession of cats who come and sit on my knee. We've got three cats, which is three too many, obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we kind of, at one point uh, during the week this week, there was a queue of cats at the door waiting to come and sit on my knee. <laughs> it's interesting you say that. The, the last two boxes, it, it, for player cards especially, have felt very kind of designed and, and complete as products to me. Um, mm. I think there's been themes in the cards, in the player cards, which have been quite strong, and they felt like very well-designed, uh, contained sets, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I think when you're working with a group, it sort of necessitates that you have a more defined organizational structure for your work, right? Like, mm -hmm. all right, we're going to do this many cards that deal with this theme and this many cards that do this mechanic. And there's going to be a suite of cards that all work like this and so on and so forth. And to to a certain extent, I did that too when I was by myself. But I would also kind of just break off and just do random thoughts that popped into my head. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So If you change your mind and do one more or one fewer, right. it doesn't affect anyone else right. in the previous yeah. setup. Yeah. Whereas now you're taking away a card from someone else's pool or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've just kind of dove in and we should tell our listeners what we're doing with you today. <laughs> we're going to talk about Edge of the Earth because it's great to have you on to be do what we've done in the past, which is almost like a director's commentary for some of that. But it's the first time we've spoken to you as well since the change up in, in release model. So if we can ask you a couple of questions about that, that would be great as yeah. well. And then we're also going to speak to you a little bit about Secrets in Scarlet and yeah. the Scarlet Keys. So that's <laughs> the short story collection that ties in with the next expansion. So there's loads, basically, that we want to pick your brain about. And what I'm going to do for listeners is I'll put some timestamps in, in the description, just to give you a warning of when things are coming at what point, if you're trying to avoid spoilers for certain things and things like that, consider this your spoiler warning. And maybe, Maxine, it's worth 
would you like to just remind us as well and remind listeners what are the limits of what you're allowed to share and not? Yeah, of course. I mean, there's always going to be questions that I can't answer, including uh, anything regarding future products that have not been announced, anything regarding, um, uh, like, past versions of things. Sometimes I will talk about past versions of things because it's fun, but um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's not something I can always divulge into and like behind the curtain stuff. Yeah. Nothing's changed too much there. So yeah, re- release model, big change. We went from a deluxe and mythos pack to a investigator and campaign expansion style. And you were definitely out there campaigning and explaining why the change and i think part of that was you also shared your own reservations i guess or rather you said you know you'd got really used to the deluxe plus mythos pack model and you liked those creative constraints yeah how are you feeling the change has gone down more broadly and also for you as a designer yeah no i mean you you're right i i did have some reservations and i did want to share those with the player base because i wanted to set an expectation for them that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This has a lot of pros, um, so many pros that we thought it was obviously a good idea. Um, but it does have a few cons. And I think for the most part is played out kind of exactly how I anticipated it would. It's led to some really unique scenarios that we couldn't make in the past model. It's, 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 uh, it's led to some unique campaigns. Like campaign structure is really broken out of its cage now. It can be whatever we want. And from a creative angle, that's great because it means we can tell all kinds of different stories that we couldn't tell before. Mm-hmm. And it's also great for the players because it means if you're a group of four and you're always playing together, you only need to pick up one copy of the campaign and then you can each pick up a copy of the player cards, which is mm-hmm. much more cost effective than everyone picking up everything. So it's good for consumers. It's good for retailers. It's good for the designers. The only thing that I was worried about was for content creators like you um you've you've got less to talk about over the course of the year there's a big gap mm-hmm. right in between mm-hmm. campaigns as you can see we're we're suffering under it now <laughs> um, yeah yeah and also just like you know it's the difference between like Netflix and and Hulu right like either you're getting the whole story up front immediately and you can binge it but then it's over and then you can just mm-hmm. yeah wait for the next season or mm-hmm. you get a doled out once a week over the course of many weeks and so the conversation continues in between episodes and people will you know conjecture about what what they think is going to happen next and it's it's a bit more like robust of a community i guess Hmm. when that happens Mm -hmm. but i mean the same can be true for the netflix model so i guess we'll find out like in the long term and you're deprived of, as the creator, I mean, of seeing those conjectures and the discussion between episodes mm. that you used to get. <laughs> you obviously saw all of that with Path to Carcosa, with Forgotten Age, people yeah. saying, well, what if it's this? Or I really trust this Ichitaka character, <laughs> you know. Whereas now, yeah, I guess some of that is gone for you as well in terms of, I, I suppose you can still see people giving feedback, but yeah, that yeah. longer term story playing out and seeing a community react in real time is to a certain extent fallen by the wayside. Yeah, that is absolutely something that's different. And also like, it's harder 
in this model for us to like kind of parse like particular player opinions about certain cards and scenarios. Because in the old model, a scenario would come out and everyone is talking about that scenario for three weeks, right? Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. all they're talking about is that scenario and the cards that came in that pack and nothing else. Um, But now something comes out and it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cards that they're all talking about simultaneously and it all kind of gets, you know, muddled together. Uh, The feedback, that is. So as as developers, we have to pay a lot more close attention to the various, um, you know, communities that we observe to kind of mm-hmm. get that feedback. You, you'd get people who would play, who play Arkham once a month. And in the old model, they would always be up to date with the latest pack because they're mm-hmm. playing once a month. But now they, it, they won't have finished playing Edge of the Earth for six months or Scarlet <laughs> Keys, however many scenarios you've got, you've got hidden in there. So yeah. the people who are talking about it in the first month have have been the kind of players who sit down and play a lot. Yeah. So you, you, you're getting their point of view. And, and you know, it's it's hard for people to talk about. I didn't have the same experience with Edge of the Earth because I was playing with a group and we, we played when we got together. Frank had a chance to play through a lot of that solo. And then I'd mm. be coming up to him and saying, oh, well, we played this scenario. And he'd just be like, hmm, interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. <laughs> <laughs> so he yeah. did, didn't have that that quite that same experience of the of the pack. Yeah. I'm not saying at all that that outweighs the benefits. It's just it's, no, it's, it's different. Obviously, we feel like the benefits outweigh the drawbacks. Yeah. That's why we did it. And and like we did it without even looking back, you know? Yeah. And I still hold to that for sure. But yeah, there's things about the old model that I miss. And is there anything about the new model that struck you that you've not seen discussed very often by the community? No, I mean, I, I think... I think there's things that are discussed maybe a little less, but I don't think it's that they're not discussed. I think I think I think um, all of the pros are pretty pretty apparent, you know, at first glance. But there's a bunch of other things that I really like. It's it's way easier to store. The um, oh god, the spiral bound campaign guide. Yeah, that's yeah. so good. That's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kudos to our producer Molly Glover because um, she had to like. Very, very particular, like, size the box exactly so that the spine of the book didn't, you know, pop the cover up, like, that kind of thing. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Isn't she on an Arkham card as well? Isn't she? Yes, um... she is Olive McBride. There we go. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, isn't she a witch? <laughs> there's, bit, there's a lot harsh. of, um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a few employees who are witches <laughs> in, in, in the game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and some of them are also witches in real life. L Rubash is yes, the, L Rubash. That's yeah. my uh, one of my best friends, Danielle. And and That's also me. making a cameo on the card, I believe, is Danielle's cat. Yes, Danielle's cat, Khaleesi. Yeah, there we go. That was it. <laughs> so good. Yeah, she works for Asmodee Entertainment. Okay. Yeah. And you mentioned the the concern for content creators and that the model was maybe less favorable for them. One of the things we saw this year was a much bigger preview season mm. for the Scarlet Keys Investigator expansion. Yes. How do you feel the preview season's gone? Uh, I think it went really well. Um, I mean, I hope it went really well, but it was definitely like a big push. Like I, I had been advocating that for that for a while, kind of just saying like, hey, like if this is the new release model, if this is what we're going to do, we're going to have to make a much more concerted effort to make sure that 
that like hype is generated at the beginning and then stays consistent all the way up till release, mm. right? Mm. We don't yeah. want it to like we don't want to announce the box and then no one hears anything and then it just comes out. That mm. would be yeah. not ideal. <laughs> so yeah, it was like I basically went to marketing with this uh with this plan except my plan was not very fleshed out. It was just like here's what I want to do. And they were like, great. Mm. And they came up with this huge spreadsheet and they put, you know, all of the content creators down. They reached out to everyone. It was great. Um, honestly, it was it was such a huge effort on their part. And I think it went really well. I'm good. I'm glad. Yeah, we. I must have been sending probably a similar email to you. But from the content creator side, mm-hmm. you could have a whole, you know, you could make a spreadsheet of who's speaking when. <laughs> and clearly, they got your message before mine. Yeah. <laughs> and it came through. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that surprised me, I was worried that it, the, people would kind of burn out on it a bit, that we'd, mm-hmm. we'd get hype at the beginning and then it would just be too much to sustain. But I think broadly <laughs> that wasn't the case at all. I think a lot of people were very excited all the way through. Uh, yeah. I think may, maybe some people dipped in and out or, or they they followed their particular favourite content creators for, for their reveals. Yeah. But on the whole, there seems to have been a real... It's been a real nice community spirit, I think, dipping into like the spoiler channels on um, various Discord servers and and seeing the chat and people saying like, "Oh, such and such a spoilers coming up." Uh, I think that's 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 been really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and like maybe there were maybe there are a bunch of people who did get burned out at some point, but that's okay. Like that's still better than they got nothing. <laughs> Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And for those for those players, like that just means that they had more surprises when they opened the box. Mm. Like I don't know about you, but when it comes to spoilers, I I tend to consume a lot really quickly and early on, and then I'm like, oh, I don't want to see more. <laughs> like I want to be surprised. You know what I mean? So I'll, like, mm. if it's a movie, like I'll watch trailer one, I'll watch the second trailer, and then I won't watch the rest of the trailers that come out after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, I like to think I'm going to do that, and then I always get too excited and and binge all the content <laughs> that I can <laughs> read about everything I can. And I'm a little bit on the other end of the spectrum, where I'm so worried that I'll binge that I try and stay away. I know that almost even a couple of spoilers, and then I'll uh, look at the whole thing. So if there's been, I mean, this is why I think I prefer a spoiler season to just someone breaking street date and leaking mm-hmm. all of the pictures. Yeah. Because then they just get consumed in a rush. And like you mentioned already, sort of how you even begin to talk about them. I might say to a friend, oh, do you want to talk about this card? And they're already looking at a completely different card that's, you know, 100 cards later in the set. And it's like, oh, how do we even begin to, to break this down? Yeah, yeah. And like, everyone's different in that regard. Mm-hmm. And I'm a bit hypocritical because I also look at leaks <laughs> for things. Mm-hmm. For, like, my favorite games, if something gets leaked, if there's, like, oh, Genshin Impact patch 3.3 just got leaked, like, I'm there. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at it. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. to a certain extent, yeah, it's it's not good for the community, but it's also not good for the person, like, looking at those leaks, usually. Because in the end, it, it destroys your hype because you just know everything, you know? Mm-hmm. It's something that I warn uh, playtesters when a playtester signs up and they're like, oh, I'm so excited. This is my favorite game. And I'm like, well, hold up. <laughs> if this is your favorite game, are you sure you want to be a playtester? Because the magic will be gone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, several times. <laughs> yeah. 
and I guess for the playtester as well, they get hyped about things they can't talk about with non-playtesters. Yep. <laughs> so there's yep. also like no outlet for their hype. Oh my goodness, I'm so- oh, I can't talk to you about this. Yeah. yeah. They can they can only share the hype with other playtesters, and then the other playtesters are like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Well, we started to talk about cards, so maybe we dive into Edge of the Earth now. Yeah. Player cards, the investigator expansion for players. Big part of this was multi-class cards making a return. What was it like dusting off the gold cards? What was fun about <laughs> revisiting them for you? Well, there were so many class combinations that we didn't do before, right? Because mm-hmm. we only did a handful. Like, back in Circle Undone, I didn't even know at the time when I first started designing those cards that they were going to be multi-class. Like, that was not the original. My first draft of those cards was they were neutral, but you had to be those class. You had to be one of those classes to use them. So it was kind of like they were okay. multi-class, but it wasn't the same. Mm-hmm. And, like, slowly over time, that warped into, like, okay, well, maybe it's just if you have access to that kind of class you know what i mean and then eventually i don't remember what the impetus was but eventually i i went to graphic design and i'm like can you just draw up like a multi-class template <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's kind of how they started so at the time i wasn't planning on there being like a full set of them it was just like these five cards so when it came time to work on edge of the earth and me and jeremy were like we should do multi-class cards again because uh, they were received pretty well but, you know, mm. there were only a few of them. So we were like, okay, well, we obviously have to do, like, all the other class combinations, right? And then we yeah. can even do, like, triple class cards. Ooh, that'd be cool. <laughs> and we just got to talking, and part of it was like, if we're going to do multi-class cards, maybe we should just do a bunch of them, like, half the box. And so, yeah, so we set to work and making, like, th- what was it, like, three or four cards per class combination, which is a lot mm. of combinations. Yeah. 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 It's like 20 different combinations, I think. Yeah. And you can see specific multi-class cards upgrading into higher level versions. Mm-hmm. You get some that are just like a very specific snapshot of the intersection of those two classes. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways that they intersect. That was kind of... So with the, the Circle and Dawn multi-class cards, we were kind of like, okay, so we're going to make a card that does... Uh, what both of these classes do and then when it upgrades it'll like side like it'll lean one way or the other you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah. so as a result a lot of those cards ended up doing like two things right like they all do two things except for maybe like enchanted blade mm-hmm. enchanted blade i think is the most elegant out of all of those and then like when we were working on these it's like okay let's let's make sure they do one thing <laughs> Um, but let's make sure that that one thing feels right for the two classes. You know what I mean? It, it needs you to have a, uh, a, a confidence in your interpretation of the color pie. Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether you've yeah. got a, a particular name for the color pie <laughs> when uh, it comes to Arkham. <laughs> yeah, j- just to make sure you don't really... Stuff feels like it belong, It could belong in both classes, right? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, using investigators as a way in to looking at that as well. Like I, you often see if it's a multi-class card that is, say, Seeker Guardian, mm-hmm. it's like, ooh, is this a Joe card? Because that's right. kind of his access. Yeah. And it's nice how specific investigators kind of give you a sense of, okay, that might be what the interaction between those two classes would be like. 
Yeah. And actually, my favorite ones are the ones where it's like, if I put, so like, here's a Seeker Rogue card. If I put it in Seeker, how different is that if I put it in Rogue? Like, it's good in both of them, but it maybe serves a different purpose in the two classes. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The kind of Eon chart. Yeah. Getting Eon. more actions as a Rogue. Yep. But also, yeah, we're, we're doing that kind of like extra movement, extra investigating as a Seeker. And is that what you mean? The Yeah. Yeah. And like... Different investigators can use it differently. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you're if you're using Ursula, then obviously Eon Chart's like a huge combo piece. If you're using like well, this is a new investigator, but if you're using like Kaimani, Eon Chart maybe serves a totally different purpose. It's it's more about evading. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Wow, yeah, good Kaimani tech. <laughs> the investigators we got in Edge of the Earth are these evolution type investigators the mighty morphin that started in one class but Mm. their xp access is actually gated to a different class what impact did that have on designing the the expansion knowing that you had these kinds of investigators mostly um when we were working on the non-multi-class cards it just Mm -hmm. made us kind of shift all of the cards that we wanted like over a class <laughs> you know what i mean like mm-hmm. so like if we're gonna do so for example the norman the the cards that are good for norman in that box are split across seeker and mystic because mm-hmm. if they're level zero they're, they're in seeker and if they're you know if they're higher level then they're in mystic mm-hmm. so it, it didn't really have an impact on the cards specifically it just it just kind of made it complicated for us Mm, Which I guess mm. um, is revenge for making it complicated for you. (laughs) (laughs) I'd lost count of the number of times I forgot. (laughs) That's how they work. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've got my head around it now. Oh, this would be a great card for Lily. Oh, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) I did that while first looking Scarlet Keys. So a year on and I'm still like, oh, it's a Seeker card. So whoever can do it. I did that on a live stream. um, (laughs) And no one in the community has let me, has forgiven me. (laughs) <laughs> I will never live that up. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was I think it was the um the guard dog community built card that we did. Oh yes, I remember and that. And I was like, say, oh, this would be such a good Daniela, Daniela card. <laughs> and everyone in the stream is like chat just you screaming. <laughs> People seem partic- particularly upset around Daniela as well, because it feels like her ability feels very guardian in terms of I'm gonna protect the team. Mm-hmm. So I think I've seen that probably more than any other of these investigators mm-hmm. that people want her to have more guardian access than she does. Yeah. I don't know if you've come across that. Survivor is good. Survivor has a lot of those tools as well. Mm-hmm. It's um, it, That's one of those cross sections where both classes kind of overlap a little bit. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. But I mean, who knows? Maybe you'll get more. Maybe you'll get more support for that. She's my definitely wow. my favorite in this in that box. This box, Edge of the Earth. And, and speaking of favorites, so much fun. Oh yeah, okay. Well, I tell you what, the, 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 we both picked just a handful <laughs> of favorite cards, and the first one kind of ties in nicely here. Mm. I picked uh, Toe, which I think I really enjoyed. Just for it's it's a good example of a card that really fits. You've got these these investigators who, like Frank said, the, the evolution investigators. But there's a tension between a card that works well 
in like a pseudo survivor like Daniela. Mm-hmm. But then you also have to make sure it works in Guardian, and it's got to work well in one, and then not well in the other, mm-hmm. or, or not too well in the other. Um, what's it like designing cards like like toe to toe, where you're designing them with a particular investigator in mind? Well, so typically those tend to be some of the easiest cards to start working on, because mm-hmm. like you know what that investigator needs, right? So it's like, well, if I'm playing Daniela, I want cards that that force an enemy to attack me so that I can make use of my ability on demand, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's all about coming up with that effect, but then also sitting down and thinking, okay, what if I'm not Daniela? Like, who else likes this card? Because if it's only one investigator who likes it, that's not great. Mm-hmm. Even if two investigators like it, that's okay. Um, but ideally, you want like a subset of investigators to all be into that idea Mm. Uh, thankfully with toe-to-toe it's pretty easy because nathaniel wants it tommy wants it like anyone who's even remotely tanky wants it but it's also an event so nathaniel you get that bonus damage which is awesome Mm -hmm. yeah yeah there's a there's a definitely like a few investigators who are totally into the idea of of uh getting a good solid automatic attack Mm -hmm. at the cost of taking a hit Toe-to-toe specifically, I can't even take credit for because what w- what happened was I was like thinking of exactly that, right? I was sitting down and I'm like, all right, Daniela, her ability procs whenever she takes damage or whenever she gets attacked. What I really want as I'm playing like early versions of Daniela is I, I want to be able to just make an enemy attack me so I can like hit them back. Mm-hmm. And then I was playing Marvel Champions and lo and behold, um, Caleb gives me a deck and one of the cards is a card called Toe to Toe. No <laughs> that, way. <laughs> it's like the villain attacks you and then you get to attack back for like a bunch of damage. And I was like, that that right there, that's what I want. So I just, yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I love those kind of effects. There's, there's quite a few in Marvel, actually. I've been playing a bit of Marvel recently and there's some good mm-hmm. justice cards that like spawn enemies or, or, or the, um, the villain schemes and things like that. And, and you get a benefit out of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I, I love that that kind of feel. It's the kind of card that makes you think like, oh, I don't want that, and then you like think about the card pool some more, and you're like, oh, maybe I do want that. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I also did one of the other cards I, I picked here as one of my faves um, was Short Supply, which is I don't know, maybe a weird choice. <laughs> we previewed Short Supply, and it was one of those cards where Frank and I looked at it, and I don't think it really sank in what it meant until we kind of because we did a do we stream it frank yeah we streamed yeah i don't think it really sank in until we we sat down and we actually start talking about it in front of people like oh Mm. there's quite a lot of possibility here (laughs) how did you because each each of these kind of permanent cards that impact how your deck play so Mm -hmm. you've got like geared up and there's one for each of the factions in this in this expansion Mm -hmm. how did you pick what identity to flesh out and, and <laughs> what kind of impact do you think short supply makes on survivor deck building? So actually it's funny. A lot of those permanents uh, were ideas that I had like put into previous cycles and then cut. So like the way we always work with player cards or the way we tend to work with player cards is we overdesign the set. We'll have like five extra cards, maybe 10 extra cards at the end of the set. 
And then we'll cut the ones that we are like, ah, I'm not sure about this one, or mm-hmm. maybe this one hasn't been playtesting super well, or even just like it has been playtesting super well, but it hasn't been playtested enough to know for sure. And yeah. a lot of those effects were like, oh, I really like this effect, but I don't know if I want another, another deck building permanent in this cycle. So I kept cutting those. And I would say like at least three of the ones in that box are are cards that were from previous cycles and cut. And one of them was short supply. But at the time, it had a different effect. And then we got to playtesting this, and uh, we made all of the other ones. I'm like, oh, we're going to do like a whole suite. It's going to be great. We're going to do a whole bunch of them. And short supply just wasn't working, the old version. And so we were sitting down, like, trying to figure out what could it possibly be. It's kind of tough, because, like, thematically, these cards represent some level of preparation or some level of like experience right Mm -hmm. but that's like antithetical to what survivors are so we were like how do we get across the theme of like not having a lot of things and like not being prepared being underprepared while also having a deck building permanent that's good right Mm. and um eventually this is what we settled on i don't remember how i don't even remember yeah i don't remember how that came to be but the idea of just like starting with a bunch of cards in your discard pile it works really well because a lot of survivor cards you can get cards back from your discard pile so it's like Mm. having a second hand almost um or even just play Mm. from your discard pile yeah i i I really love that i think it's a really it's a really neat design that um and when you wrap your head around why it's useful like you say like a second hand I, yeah. It's great watching people like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was I was testing I was playtesting Parallel Wendy at the time that we redesigned Short Supply to be this. And I remember mm-hmm. I had a lot of uh recurrable events in my mm-hmm. in my deck. So I remember that being like, oh yeah, this is gonna work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's this the presumed downside of it that you might miss out you know a key piece will end up in your discard pile but you're in the faction where scrabbling around in the discard pile is kind of what they do so yeah it's like worst case scenario yeah if you're wendy like worst case scenario your amulet ends up in the discard pile and then you just scavenge and get it back right Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah or if it's not a neutral card you can just use resourceful or scrounge for supplies or whatever yeah 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 yeah. Well, I wanted to ask as well about Underworld support, the mm. rogue permanent. Yeah, I guess wild. my connect <laughs> question is now that we've also seen Underworld market, it feels like there's a sub theme developing in rogue, which is that the mafia messes with your deck in some way. Like either you're gone <laughs> Highlander or you've got an illicit side deck. Yeah. Is that, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about Underworld support? That's funny. I hadn't even thought about that as being like. <laughs> Oh, they're both Underworld cards. <laughs> yeah. No, it's more... Okay, actually, so it's so, completely unintentional. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> underworld support, that's another one that started off, like, way earlier. I think I... I think my first draft of that effect was in, like, Carcosa, and it just kept getting bumped, because the idea was rogues are the are the class that have the most exceptional cards, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah. they're, the, they're the class that's kind of high-risk, high-reward in terms of deck-building, like, if I saw my good cards, I'm really good. If I got my combo together, I'm really good. But if I didn't, then I'm somewhat mediocre. So they have, like, a weird XP curve where all of their cards are 
zero, one, two, and then like six plus. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, not all of their cards, but like, you know, yeah, that's like the more common, right? And so because they have such a high density of, of exceptional cards, I wanted there to be some cards that kind of keyed off of that, but I didn't necessarily want them to say the word exceptional anywhere. I wanted them to mm-hmm. like naturally play into that strategy. And the you can only have one copy of all cards in your deck like thing is perfect for that. Because if you're looking for a card that you have two copies of, uh, and you have two copies in a 30-card deck, that means you have a 1 out of 15 chance of drawing it, right? But if it's exceptional, you only have a 1 out of 30 chance of drawing it. It's less than that, because you have cards in your hand, but whatever. But if you're playing Underworld Support, you actually have a much better chance of drawing it if it's an exceptional card, because you only have one of it anyway. <laughs> so, anyway. Point is, that's just a, a card effect that I've been kind of hanging on to for a while, and I think at the time there just wasn't enough exceptional cards or limit one per deck cards to make use of it. And now there definitely is. So, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen people mention that idea of round. It's, it doesn't turn your whole deck exceptional, mm. but it <laughs> smooths out the weirdness of, oh, I've got these specific one ofs. It's like, right. Yeah. My whole approach to my deck is one ofs. Right. And if I treat got, every card as a one off. Yeah. If you've got like eight exceptional or limit one per deck cards in your deck. Definitely mm-hmm. consider running Underworld support. Yeah. It's also just fun. Like, yeah. <laughs> your your <laughs> deck is less consistent, and, uh, and, and certain card gamers will maybe hate me for saying this, but a less consistent deck is fun. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> You're just coming in with all the big headlines here. Finally, <laughs> take that Maxine is cancelled for. <laughs> I mean, I, I maybe wouldn't run it in a tournament. <laughs> but hey, it's co op. So. I guess the last card I just wanted to mention briefly was uh, Jeremiah Kirby, <laughs> which I have to bite my tongue from calling Jeremy. I thought it was funny. So, so j- just in preparation for this, I brought up um, Architect, which yeah. was Jeremy's World Champ card for uh, for winning twenty twelve. Oh gosh, uh, I don't net, remember. Netrunner champs. Let me have a look at the card. I've got it open here. Yes, World Champion twenty twelve, Jeremy's Vern. What what surprised me was how much the two cards had in common. Mm. First of all, they both involve looking at the top five cards of your deck, and then they were they both cost four, uh, and also they were both so good they had to be addressed by a, <laughs> <laughs> a ban list or a taboo list. <laughs> I just I, I I just wanted to bring it up because it just it it feels like a a really nicely designed effect. I, I, yes. I, it's just a lovely card to play and then think about. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a very Jeremy card. Um, yes. <laughs> he, he likes cards that are efficient. So cards that give you resources, cards that give you cards, um, cards that speed you up. Anything that like just makes your tableau like a well-oiled machine. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> oof. My throat is really dead. Yeah. So he likes cards like that. He also likes cards where you get to have a choice involved, like where it's like, Anything that can help you make a tactical decision in the moment is is very mm-hmm. uh, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. And also, he likes cards that make you think about it during deck building, um, which yeah. this card definitely does. Because if you have if you build a deck that's all even or all odd and no skills, you're going to draw a lot of cards. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I just yeah. I, the, the the prong I like is that it 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 can get you a particular card. You'd be like, oh yeah. well, I want I don't know my machete or whatever. 
So I'll pick odd because then if it's in the five cards, I get it. Or yes. you can try and target the most cards that are left in your deck to draw the most cards out of it. Uh, I saw online someone built, and this is exactly what I mean by the tactical decision-making element of it. Someone built a deck that every asset was, was I, I forget which was which, but every asset was odd or even, and then every event was the opposite. <laughs> of course, yeah. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're like, I really need to set up my board, you play Jeremiah and you guess whichever one is asset and you just get a bunch of assets in your hand. And if your board is already set up, you do the opposite and you get a bunch of events. I thought that was really clever. That's like really it. nice. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. <laughs> I was using Jeremiah in Norman to do a similar thing. Like if I'm trying to get Astronomical Atlas, that's nice. odd. And then I think much of the rest of the deck was even. Yeah. And exactly that. Like am I using this as a tutor or am I losing this as an astral? It's a really nice card. It's one of those effects that's like the more you know your deck, the better it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. that yeah. felt very Jeremy. That it was yes. that exact take. I was like, "This is a classic Jeremy bit of design." <laughs> yeah. yeah, I didn't want to assume it was him that had designed it, but all the, oh, all the whole box were like, there. <laughs> <laughs> That's like you don't you don't yeah you don't tread on another man's uh, five year art. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe finally, can I ask you about the new spell suite we got, which is the multi class spell suite? Yeah. There's so many lovely details. We've got obviously two versions of these cards. I originally wrote, I was wondering if you're feeling the challenge of iterating on the use willpower spell thing. But I wrote that before we'd then seen the charms in the Scarlet Mm. Keys (laughs) with all of their, another way of using willpower, but in a different slot and all of that kind of thing. So yeah, how are you finding designing mystics? And can you tell us a little bit about the intricacies of multi-class mystic? Yeah. Spells. Yeah. So, like, when we first started jotting down all the multi-class cards, that was like, all right, we should definitely do a whole suite of spells that all work kind of the same way, and they're all multi-class. And then, you know, there's one for rogue, one for guardian, one for survivor. So we jotted those down like immediately, and they they all kind mm-hmm. of like, I don't know, they kind of designed themselves. The like, the fact that you can use willpower but don't have to made a lot of sense because it's multi-class so if you're just a guardian you can take brand of Cthulhu and just use your combat and then it was like okay well we need one other different thing right like that can't just be the only difference between that and like shriveling so we messed around with the charges a bit you know and to be honest like to answer your question about if we're feeling the challenge of iterating not yet even which is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. There's so many little ne- like levers and knobs that we can turn with any particular mm-hmm. card that making a new version, I mean, they they won't always be drastically different, but even just changing how charges work on a spell or changing it from charges to a different use even or changing its slot or changing its 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 cost to effectiveness ratio. Like there's so many things that we can tweak like sitting here right now if i wanted to i could come up with like five new types of spells the tricky part is with mystics in general is has always been like a difficult class to design for because if you start designing things that don't rely on willpower everyone throws their hands up and is like oh i'm not gonna play these willpower is my good stat you know what i mean Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but then if you design an, an investigator who willpower is not their good stat everyone throws up their arms and says 
oh, this investigator has four willpower. Pfft, trash. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> yeah. So it's hard to like sort of reconcile those two those two pieces of mm. feedback. Like, so finally with Amina, it was like, okay, I'm going to make a low willpower mystic. It's going to happen. Here it is. And if you don't like it, that, you know, you don't have to engage with it. But guess what? It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> and then the trick there was coming up with assets that don't use willpower, but still aren't so good that you just drop them into every non-mystic class. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. You, there can't be a mystic melee weapon that's better than the guardian melee weapon. Mm, so it has yeah, to be uniquely yeah. mystic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, Frank phoned me up outraged about divination. He, he, was, he wasn't. He wasn't. I can't believe you're doing this, Peter. I get angrier and angrier each time you embellish this story. I know. I know. It's like me and um, what's it, the um, Ace of Rods. Um, your gut reaction to divination was a bit. I, I don't know where this goes. Yeah, but I think yeah. the more you thought about these cards, the more you've grown fond of them. Especially Brand of Cthulhu, which is I see all over the place. I think that's a great mm. card as well. Yeah, it's, it's that divination to me summed up the kind of challenge of it's a seeker and a mystic card. It's getting clues, mm -hmm. but they both already have ways of doing that in faction. And how does it force its way in or not? When it, certainly when I initially was looking at it, I couldn't see how that made sense. Mm -hmm. And now that I've played it, I actually really love, like one of the knobs you've pulled is that you only spend the charges based on the damage you want to do or the clues yeah. you want to get, yeah. Yeah. which is just, oh, so delightful and love that so much now. But yeah, I think it was a perfect illustration for me of how hard it is to go into that. Certainly it, from the outside, it seems like it's a hard space to fit into because there's lots of spells already that get you clues two at a time or whatever else it is. Yeah. We've we've definitely hit the 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 sort of critical threshold of cards in this game that mm. for a lot of cards that come out now, there already exists a tool for doing that thing. And that's fine. That's how card games have always worked, right? I'm thinking back to like Netrunner, where it's like there's already you know, eight or nine different decoders, eight or nine different killers, eight or nine different fractors that all exist in the same class. How do we make this next one um, different enough or exciting enough or niche enough that someone uses it? It doesn't have to be everyone. In fact, we don't want it to be everyone. Like if Brand of Cthulhu came out and everyone dropped Shriveling, Wither, Azure, Flame, all of those spells in favor of Brand of Cthulhu forever, that would be... Mm way worse right so yeah. it's it's just yeah. about providing enough different bits about it that someone will get attached to that and just use that you know what i mean mm -hmm. and by someone mm -hmm. i mean either an investigator or a real human being and it could be anything right it could be mechanically it could be they just like the art you know mm -hmm. i i actually know one person who only ever uses azure flame instead of any other attack spell. And I asked them, like, it's not that Azure Flame doesn't work in your particular deck, but I always see that you're using that spell. Like, why, why do you like it? And they're just like, I just, I just think it's cool. It's a blue flame. <laughs> and I'm like, cool. <laughs> All right. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Like that. Yeah. Peter, do you want to ask anything more about 
the player cards or shall we move over to the campaign? I don't think so. Um, what I'm going to do is grab my edge of the earth file off the shelf. I'll just <laughs> very, very quickly leaf through it and see if anything else. It has been there. a while, yeah. It has, yeah. And I actually re- I, I refiled every single card a few weekends ago when because um, I, I used to do them by faction uh, and mm. did faction then type then alphabetically. Mm-hmm. But I've just refiled everything just by release order. So I don't have to keep resorting everything when it, when new stuff comes out. Oh, yeah. Small question, Maxine, as Peter does that. Yeah. Is William Webb a member of the Webb family that Carson Sinclair is the butler for? It's a deep, deep I law question. I don't there. think so. No. Because that, no. that William Webb, that Professor William Webb, I think is from a particular Lovecraft story and Carson is not. So okay. I would say it's probably just yeah. a coincidence. Yeah, okay. There's not like a Arkham Files official, it's William Webb's cousins or something. <laughs> no, I, I think, that, that, I mean, there's a lot we could talk about. Like the new composures, I think are really, really good. The synergy mm-hmm. cards, I think there's some really nice cards in the synergy, the syne- synergy collection of cards as well. Mm-hmm. But I'm happy to, to move on and start to talk a little bit about the story. It's entirely, now that I'm thinking about it, it's entirely pars- possible that the Webb family in Carson's backstory was like an homage to this character. Could make sense, yeah. 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 Let's dive into Edge of the Earth, the campaign. I was just reflecting on how players were exploring the new release model and it's an exploration themed <laughs> campaign <laughs> what words and themes were front and center for you when you were designing edge of the earth well it's fun it's it's interesting because like we already did an expedition themed campaign right mm-hmm. so we were trying to find ways to sort of differentiate this one from the forgotten age and i think the main the main difference is like the sources of inspiration where the Forgotten Age was very pulp, action-adventure, very Indiana Jones, with a couple exceptions. There's a couple scenarios that are a bit, like, more traditional Lovecraft. But for Mm -hmm. the most part, it was kind of a, yeah, just very, very pulpy. But with with Edge of the Earth, I wanted it to feel more like a horror movie. Specifically, like, not not quite the thing, but, like, the idea of, like, the the climate being one of your primary enemies, right? Like this is not, mm-hmm. even though like the, the snake infested jungle was pretty harsh <laughs> as well, but this is just like harsh for anyone, regardless of whether there's terrible monsters. So I wanted to get that feeling across. And also with, with, with the forgotten age, you're kind of by yourself. Even when you are part of an expedition, you're kind of by yourself. But with this one, I wanted it to feel like more of an organized effort, and there's a lot of other supporting characters. Mm-hmm. So that was that was like the two big things that I wanted to differentiate from this campaign and Forgotten Age. And of course, obviously, it being the first campaign we've ever done with this new release model, we wanted to take advantage of that. This am I right in thinking that you knew the release model before you began designing this campaign? There was a very, very short period of time in which I started working on Edge of the Earth, not knowing 
that the release model is going to change. Um, but it was very quickly after that we made mm-hmm. the the change and uh, wound up being a really good thing for the for the uh, campaign mm-hmm. for a lot of mm-hmm. reasons. What impact did you think it had on developing the campaign, changing the model? Well, mainly the story. Mm-hmm. There were certain like in my original outline. Obviously, there's eight scenarios. So in my original outline, there were certain scenarios that I just wasn't a hundred percent sure about like existing <laughs> at all mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. as soon as we as soon as we came up with a new release model it was like okay well i don't have to have eight scenarios then i can have five scenarios and they can each be big and expansive and like bigger than they've ever been before and then we mm-hmm. kind of settled on like three of the scenarios being that big and the other two being pretty pretty traditional but mainly what it allowed us to do is just more with the narrative. Those interludes would not have been possible in the old system. Those mm-hmm. uh, fatal mirage, just the way that it works, could not have been possible. The yeah. scenarios that you can just kind of like skip if you don't want to play them. Yeah, like that would be a really disappointing mythos pack. <laughs> fatal mirage as mythos pack one, yeah, and then yeah. again four, and then mythos pack seven. Like <laughs> <laughs> people would get very confused by that. Point. Yeah, and yeah. like. The, the idea of ice and death and like certain scenarios sharing the same map, but having wildly different objectives within that map mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was really exciting for me. That's, that's something I really think worked well. And it's, this isn't to disparage, uh, disparage Forgotten Age. I think mm. that the feeling of exploring and then learning a map really yes. came through in that early part of the campaign. Yeah. That's, that's good to hear. <laughs> I also think, and, and I don't know whether this is the because of the, the, the change in distribution or anything else, or whether it was just, from what you said, probably not. It, it definitely felt like you nailed the theme of the environment being an antagonist in the campaign. Oh, awesome. The, 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 the encounter sets felt mm. like they... It was all themed around bad weather. <laughs> yeah, and the it was all like, as mechanically well. it was all like attaching to locations, which yeah, yeah. which like that's I think what makes it feel like it's it's the environment itself that is deadly. Right. Well it worked, is what nice. I was gonna say, yeah. <laughs> can I can I jump in and ask about the partners just before we start going into the the individual scenarios? Yeah. I was saying to Frank before, I can hear Frank's eyes rolling from here. Um, I was comparing, <laughs> before we started talking, I was chatting to Frank. We were talking about uh, Red Dead Redemption, mm. or Red Dead Redemption 2 more specifically, where you've got this camp of people uh, and each death in that camp kind of hits you hard. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other kind of touchstone for me was uh, the, the Bioware RPGs, where you've got that small party of distinct personalities and you could you know in mass effect you go and chat to them on the normandy and and, and things like that yeah what kind of tricks did you use to get people attached to the partners (laughs) and (laughs) and be upset when they died it's that's tough because like we're even with how long the intro to uh edge of the earth is and it, it is long it's longer than probably any other campaign prologue uh not probably it definitely is (laughs) <laughs> even even with how long it is it's hard to p- get people attached to a character just through introducing them yeah yeah kind of had to be as long as it is just to just to actually introduce them right because it is a big cast but 
I think mainly the, 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 like the thing that got people attached to them the most from what I understand is just the mechanics of like, oh man, you're telling me I start with this person in play yeah. <laughs> and they've got like five total health and sanity and, and they have this awesome ability. Like, and I, I just start with them for free. Oh, yeah. these are, these people are great. I love them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love you, Takada. Yeah. 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 Dead. And then you get attached to, um, like the one that works with your deck really well and mm. you don't want them to die. And then they do. <laughs> yeah. I think there's, it's, it, it comes across on repeat plays as well. So the, the knowledge you build up of the story of the characters mm-hmm. and their arcs with the other characters as well. Nice. Uh, on your second and subsequent playthroughs, you're like, ah, right. Well, I'm going to try and keep these two alive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, in whatever short amount of time that we had in the prologue to introduce them, it was important that they all had like a very, very apparent either personality or something, some hook, right? Some mm-hmm. hook that made you want to get to know them more. Mm-hmm. So like Dr. Kensler's no nonsense, like attitude, um, Mala's kind of like bad bedside manner. Um, yeah, no nonsense attitude. Yeah, yeah, no nonsense attitude. <laughs> perfect. Um, uh, Cookie's like gruff, sort of just cursing all the time. Mm. Roland and El- uh, Ellsworth and Claypool, you get that like tense sort of. Oh, there's something going on with the two of them. Like, I want to know more. Like, why? Why are they mad at each other? You know what I mean? So mm. there's a lot of like little stories that. Yeah, that play out over the course of Edge of the Earth, and I think it was important that they they weren't just like these cookie cutter like sort of characters, and they have some mm. kind of personality to them. With what little space we have to flesh that out, because we have very little space to flesh that out. And then you throw in and you, just for the heartstrings. Oh, yeah, <laughs> the closest I've ever come to crying while playing a card game. <laughs> <laughs> When a liar dies and you end up visiting his tent and there's just Annie oh, sitting there. <laughs> so yeah. sad. That was that's a that's a funny thing that like came later where I was like I think Anyu was like the last piece that we commissioned because I was like, Oh man, honestly, this character is half just the dog, right? <laughs> like, everyone's gonna love this dog more than the actual person. So I thought it would be cool if you could earn Anyu as a reward. And obviously, I was like, well, the only way he's given up on you is if he's dead, so... <laughs> yeah. And that led to the creation of all of the other cards in that set. Okay. Little did you know you were then inspiring players to kill off Aliyah Ashabak <laughs> as soon as possible to get their hands on Anu. You've yeah. turned us into... He was on borrowed time, blood. anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This, this is a total aside, but did you watch Prey, Maxine? Watch the, the... Prey? The um the new Predator film that's on oh, Disney+. Oh, that's right. It's called Prey, isn't it? I yeah, did yeah. not. So th- there's a dog in that. The-, the director was writing about the test screenings. And it mm-hmm. was like all of our friends and family were saying, you've got to put the dog in more. You need more of the dog. And he was like, <laughs> the dog was too excited. We used every single scrap of footage we had that was usable with the dog. Because <laughs> 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 he was, I-, I-, I think the dog wasn't like a like a show dog or a trained dog. It was like a it was like a stray they picked up who just worked really well Aww, on set. If you like cute. dogs, I can highly recommend Prey. <laughs> <laughs> as long as nothing bad happens to the dog. I, can, I cannot confirm or deny anything about the dog. You just have to watch the film and find out. Okay, okay. I think just one of the things that did strike me, and I'd be interested to hear 
your perspective on this. I felt like some of the more memorable moments and story development moments in this campaign kind of happened mid-scenario. Mm-hmm. It felt more like I was playing the story rather than I was playing the bits between the story kind of happening. Mm. Uh, and I don't know whether the, maybe that's the interludes or the way the interludes are used and they interact with the partners. Yeah. There's... How do I say this? I think in the past we've been really reticent to tell the players to pick up the campaign guide in the middle of a scenario. Right. We only do it very sparingly, like at the end of the Dream Eaters, um, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple scenario interludes. But the more we've done it, the more we realize how valuable of a tool that can be. Because mm-hmm. we can have, like you, like you said, we can have these story moments that happen in the middle of a scenario and you don't see it coming because you're used to all of the story moments being on the back of a card. So yeah, I think um, I think that went really well. And I think you'll see some more of that in Scarlet Keys. I think you'll see more of that in the future. Not to say that you're going to be picking up the campaign guide every five seconds, but... Mm-hmm. It is a it is a very valuable tool for you know delivering narrative in the middle of a scenario. Now that's good. I, it, as I said, I think, and we'll come to it when we talk about the relevant scenario. But actually, I think one of my the most memorable moments I've had in a, in an Arkham story uh, comes up in this campaign. Nice. But should well, should we talk start talking about the first scenario then, Frank? Yeah, let's dive in. Helpfully, Frank has played almost the entire scenario yesterday. <laughs> uh, the, the, sorry, the almost entire campaign yesterday. So, yes, then the day before, <laughs> yeah. It's very fresh in his mind. So yeah, we start with Ice and Death. You actually already alluded to it, Maxine, that mm. idea of one map, three scenarios, and trying to do different things on the same map. Mm-hmm. It feels like Ice and Death is the real shop front for there's a new model, there's a new way of approaching. I could almost imagine that this would have been the deluxe if it was in the old model. Yeah. It like builds yeah. up to a climactic sort of boss fight by the end of like scenario three but it's sort of scenario two yeah 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 and then of course also here there's the hostility of the landscape as well what goes into designing all of those hazards that are attaching to locations oh gosh well those also yeah those went through a lot of different revisions because like originally i wanted them to stick around a little longer Mm. but that became really fiddly to track Mm-hmm, if like mm-hmm. this one's been in play for two turns and this one's been in play for three turns and so that ended up being a lot more direct like it's gonna stick around for one turn or it's gonna stick around for like one you know it's gonna hit you once and then go away mm-hmm. and then there's certain ones like the one that prevents you from moving unless you mm. succeed at an agility test like through the ice yeah 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 basically like if players hate it but it's like mechanically fair it's like disproportionately hated you know what i mean mm-hmm. then i feel like maybe i've done my job cuz it should feel that like oppressive right mm-hmm. there's certain cards that like they're not really that bad when you sit down and really think about them but when you talk to players you're like what's the what's the card you hate the most it's like whippoorwills <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. um yeah. and i i would say yeah. that that's one of those cards too Absolutely. This suddenly forcing you to stop and be like, ah, but I was just going to last action leave, but now I don't know <laughs> if I will. And, ah, you know, and especially again, when you get like the two or three card combo. So you're stuck oh, in a place yeah. that's also got like its own bad weather effect. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Or someone's drawn a whiteout, so your stats are lower, <laughs> so you can't buy. Yeah. 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 And I noticed replaying as well, there's quite a lot of chip damage. There's little mm-hmm. little bits of damage being given out. It's yeah. the same with, you know, taking damage if you see a frost token. Mm-hmm. So it feels like the environment is hostile in that way, in that you're seeing your health and sanity pool go down, but you're not actually being hit by enemies. It's more just being chipped away. Yeah, when you have these like big maps and long scenarios, I wanted it to feel like an endurance run, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a test mm-hmm. of your endurance. So yeah, that's a good observation. That's exactly what we wanted it to feel like. And the other thing that really jumps out to me here is that this feels like a really organic exploration because mm-hmm. you've just put that very simple rules text of when you reveal a location, put the other locations that connect to it into play. Mm-hmm. Have you learned from Explore in the past or was it just that you decided you wanted to try a different way of Explore happening? Well, yeah. So like we didn't want to just do the Explore mechanic again like the same thing mm-hmm. the big difference there with explore was you didn't get the map up front so until you've played the scenario like a number of times to get a feel for what the map actually looks like you kind of are just flying blind mm. and you might not even have that full picture so with this one it's different because it's like you know what the map looks like we, we give it to you um we mm. show you what the map mm-hmm. looks like but we don't want to start with all those locations in play because it's it's a very complicated board state. And it's typically better from just a game design standpoint to have the board state start as simple as possible and then expand over time because you have time to get used to the previous cards that were in play. And it makes mm-hmm. it makes it easy for a player to to parse an incredibly complicated uh, setup. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, when you when you tune into someone who's playing a game and they've been playing it for two hours and you're like, I have no idea what's going on in this game. The reason mm-hmm. they do is because it started off so simple and it yeah. just grew. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So but then once you've become familiar with the map and you play in the second and third scenarios, it just stays the way it was. And that was pretty cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And particularly because the map. It, even the locations stay the same state. It's like, mm-hmm. have you visited that place? Have you found the way in yet with the clues? Yeah. So there's that also that sense of, like, okay, we need to get into the barrier camp or the crystalline cavern. We didn't make it in last time. What's in there? Yeah, it's the first time we've done a scenario with like that kind of stretch goal of like, you might not see the whole map the first time you play. In fact, you almost definitely won't. But by the mm. time you've played through all three scenarios, maybe you will. Yeah. That's kind of yeah. cool. And there are supplies scattered across the map, but we as players are not explicitly told we have to collect them. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us maybe a little bit more about this hiding in plain sight approach for the supplies? Because it yeah. recurs again into the Forbidden Peaks as well. Yeah. Actually, the, the whole origin of those cards was from Forbidden Peaks. Cause, um, uh, okay. So I was designing Ice and Death, Final, uh, Final Mirage... Fatal Mirage, sorry, and Heart of Madness. And Jeremy was designing City of the Elder Things and Forbidden Peaks. And Jeremy mm-hmm. had sort of in a vacuum come up with this idea for Forbidden Peaks of like going up the mountain. And ostensibly, it's a very simple sort of just get from point A to point B. But one thing that Jeremy really likes to do is introduce these like stretch goals that are really that like 
are almost like optional difficulty enhancers that you can like burdens that you can take upon yourself to make things easier in the future. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so he'd come up with all these supplies and originally you just, you just kind of had them. Like they were just part of the story. Here's just all the supplies that you brought with you. And I thought to myself like, Oh shit, there's all these supplies and we just awkwardly don't have them in ice and death. And I was trying to think of a way to make it so that those supplies like showed up earlier. Mm-hmm. And eventually that's what I settled on was like, what if they were just scattered all throughout ice and death in all three parts and you can get them or you can not get them. And however many you bring, that's, that's what you have with you in forbidden peaks. And Jeremy was like, that sounds great. So yeah, we just kind of threw them in there. Not like last minute, but we just kind of threw them in there. And yeah, I purposely didn't want to call attention to them because honestly, to, to a certain extent, it's not even necessary as a player you see that and you're like, well, that sounds cool. You know what I mean? Mm, mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Kind of want to train players to be paying attention. And if they're, if they read that and then they just ignore it for the rest of the game, like that's on them. So it kind of rewards, it rewards players who are paying close attention and uh, are willing to satiate their curiosity. I think it even says something in one of the flavor texts on one of the actor agendas, like, you should collect as many supplies as you can and hunker down for the night or something along those lines mm-hmm. where it's like it's called out but not in a objective this is what you need to do to win it's more like find safety and exactly as you say players can interpret that yeah it's like you definitely want to resign you definitely want to like find a good campsite and resign but maybe there's more to find out there if you look around <laughs> like that kind of thing <laughs> uh, yeah so Fatal Mirage. When should we talk about Fatal Mirage? Because we normally do <laughs> scenarios in order. When's a good point to discuss this scenario? Um, I anytime. All the times. A- yeah. Any, yeah, we'll talk about it once now, and then once after Forbidden Peaks, and then once again. After, no. <laughs> yeah, I, we can talk yeah. about it now. Yeah, let's talk about it now. Yeah. Mechanically, this is a, in a certain extent, it's a catch-up scenario. Insofar mm-hmm. as if you're doing really badly, a load of partners have died, you're thrown into Fatal Mirage, there's a chance for loads of XP mm-hmm. when you go down their different branches. But of course, it's also this, like, is it even a scenario? Is it just a story engine? Because there's so much story <laughs> in terms of backstory. How do you match up those two things of the kind of catch up and, and story providing? Hmm. So, yeah, I kind of feel it's funny you brought up Bioware earlier because um, one of my favorite things in like all of those games are like the loyalty missions. Yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but obviously I couldn't do a loyalty mission for every single partner. That would be, you know, insane. That'd be like nine scenarios. So I came Maybe up with this one idea, day. like, what if we could explore everyone's backstory in a particular scenario? And I was kind of inspired by like, like the mists, like Stephen King's The Mist, of like this mist or this fog that, this miasma that like can take the, like it knows what you know, and it can take the form of your your memories and your past and your traumas. And that would be a cool way for me to like showcase who these characters really are. And I specifically wanted there, like if you're playing Fatal Mirage, some people are dead. Because I wanted you to learn some of that stuff posthumously. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I wanted you to be like, oh man, this character was dealing with this whole thing and 
now I can't even resolve it with them. Like, oh, now I want to go back and play this again. I wanted it to be this, like, extremely replayable scenario. And also with the map, like, it's kind of the opposite of Ice and Death. Like, they're both huge. But with Ice and Death, we show you what the map looks like. And you you can grok it pretty easily. But mm. with Fatal Mirage, it's kind of the opposite. Like, I wanted it to feel like a maze. It's yeah, a it's, a, it's a weird map. Yeah, what's it? And it's an enormous map, mm. but you don't you don't see all of it uh, on a single playthrough, mm. and you very rarely play it more than once or twice. I think it's interesting, yeah. like like you said, like the loyalty quest. What jumped into head? I, I was thinking of Planescape Torment as well, and you can mm-hmm. like upgrade your companions. It's the same with a lot of a lot of role playing games that have a small pool of of well written companions like that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of the best tools because you're driven to upgrade the the, the companions you like. Mm-hmm. So you're using Takada a lot for the resources. You're like, okay, let's let's go and get the upgraded Takada in this scenario. And in doing that, you learn more about the characters you'd love. And it's almost a shame you can, in a lot of playthroughs, uh, if you haven't had anyone else die, you might only get to do it once across the whole campaign. Yeah. I don't know whether there's a, there's an optimized route which involves tactically killing some people off early <laughs> in order to get there earlier. <laughs> yeah, that was something that was difficult to balance. Like, how often do these characters die? How easy should it be for them to die? That was something we went back and forth on a lot. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. And to be honest, I think we landed in a spot where maybe they don't die often enough. <laughs> I was kind of hoping going into Forbidden Peaks, for example, that most players, I was kind of expecting most players to lose one partner per scenario. Mm. So like going into Forbidden Peaks, I thought maybe they'd be down to six. Maybe they maybe they'd have seven. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, people going to Forbidden Peaks have all eight that they can possibly have. So if I could go back in time, I would maybe make it a little harder for them to stay alive. Maybe introduce mm-hmm. a few more effects that like force you to put damage or horror on them, or I don't know. But you can always just play on hard. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a difficult one. I think. Uh, I think the there's there's narrative events which kick off the death of companions mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, uh, and they that felt like it was it was always scary when that was happening because we knew someone was well, we knew someone was going to die, <laughs> and we didn't know whether it was going to be someone that we were we were had grown attached to by that point in the campaign yeah so i get yeah it, like you say it's a difficult one do, do you want do you want to tend to the side of people kind of coming out the end with no one else or right. that they had a good chance of their favorite people at least surviving yeah and like i i always wanted it to be like both like player skill can mitigate how many of them die mm-hmm. but some of them gotta die like they got it done. Yeah. Like that was that was part of it from the get go. It was like, you know, I rewatched a lot of um I rewatched a lot of pulp horror movies going into Edge of the Earth. I rewatched like The Mummy, for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I rewatched um well The Thing. I rewatched uh Oh, what am I forgetting? There was one other really big one that I rewatched. But you get the idea. Like just like Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's gotta be in order to show the stakes. There's got to be characters that just bite it. Yes. Um, early, even. And that, that first... The, the f- and I think this is another one of my favourite moments. It's not my favourite moment in the campaign, but a great moment is you do that right at the start. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and when Frank and I played for the first time as well, it was Dyer, right? Mm. We convinced Dyer to come on the expedition. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. And then smashed smashed his plane into the side of a mountain and killed him. Yeah. Womp womp. Just, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Just so brutal. Funny you should say that, Maxine, about m- maybe losing one personario because playing this weekend with a friend, we had the one plane death and then one of Ice and Death went really badly wrong for us and mm-hmm. we lost two more partners. Oof. And we were then exactly that point, yeah. like six left alive, staring down. Do we go into Fatal Mirage yes, right now good. before Forbidden Peaks? Ooh. We can obviously get more XP, but like suddenly being like, okay, we need to pick who we're going to try and make resolute right now. Yeah. Because this is actually getting really scary. <laughs> well, I was going to mention the other cool thing about Fatal Mirage is if you, if you don't go the resolute route and you actually mm. pursue the characters who died, Mm-hmm. And like only those characters, you actually end up with more XP and faster. Yeah, because that's the two XP um, yeah. route. That's where I was saying it's like the the catch up mechanic style. Right. If you've yeah. lost a load of partners and you go with them, yeah, and you don't have to deal with the memories, right. so you yeah. don't have a sort of mini boss to fight. Yeah, those upgraded companions are worth way may way more than two XP though. They're good. <laughs> They're, They're very so good. good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> From a mechanical standpoint or sort of a, a tactical standpoint as a player, some of it is, well, right, we've already opened this branch of the map. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to make so-and-so resolute, but we could also, we know that, you know, Danforth is dead. So let's just do the Danforth room as well, because that's another 2xp. Yeah. Certainly that's how I play it. Yeah, it's a very different scenario if you've played it before. Because mm, I feel like the yeah. first time you play it, you're kind of just wandering through it and you don't really know what you should be doing you you kind of just go and then mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. get to the end of one path and you're like oh there's gonna be nine of these you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah 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 we even had that we've so in this playthrough we we played it a second time because of the deaths and we mm-hmm. wanted to do more and even then you know the map regenerates and there are all these clues out ready to be grabbed. It's much more like, okay, we're we're back in the mirage. We know where we're going. Go down this way to the classroom. Okay, <laughs> get the clues here. It feels much more familiar, obviously. Yeah. Well, should we should we head up the for- Forbidden Peaks now? Take it away, Peter. Yeah. yeah. Well, m- memorable in our campaign, Frank, for uh, Jack, Monterey Jack, falling down the entire mountain <laughs> <laughs> in the closing turns. Kids, is is he going to fail again? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Yeah. <laughs> Just dropping dropping all of his supplies and clues as he tumbles down the mountain. <laughs> Luckily, Jack is fast enough to run up the mountain twice. So. Yes, oh, yeah. going to be such an obscure joke, but have you ever um, have you ever watched a YouTube series called Girl Chan in Paradise? No, it's <laughs> it's made by um, it's made by Aaron Hansen of Game Grumps, like back in the day, back when he did Newgrounds videos. It's basically just a parody of every anime, and um, there's a scene with a guy who falls down a staircase, and he just keeps falling down and down and down the staircase. And oh, it's what I you s- just t- told me reminded me of that. <laughs> I think I have, I think I have seen that out of context. Yeah. I'll, oh, it's I'll look so that good. He's like, he's like, he's like, he's like, I'm going to attack him head on, and then it's just like, <laughs> it's just, it's just the sound of like someone like batting a microphone. <laughs> oh my god it gets me every time (laughs) we kind of covered what i wanted to ask already around the supplies Mm. i really like how this scenario changes up based on how many supplies you've scavenged yeah i think that's a really nice touch 
And if you're playing in solo and you've done really well in Ice and Death and have six or seven supplies, <laughs> it's then like turns worth of loading them all on your back yeah. to try and start walking up the hill with them. Oh, Whereas if you've worse. got <laughs> four supplies and you're playing four player, it's like, oh, we can all spare an action to grab a supply. That's fine. <laughs> so I really like, and I know you, you mentioned already that it's that slightly that stretch goal style that mm-hmm. Jeremy wanted to add into the scenario i think it's a really nice touch is it intentional you can complete forbidden peaks without losing a partner if you're (laughs) that quick uh it it is although it wasn't always like that i wanted it to be mandatory Mm -hmm. but we had tied it to the agenda and i was like jeremy you should move that to the act somehow it should be like oh upon getting to level four it just happens and jeremy was like Oh, I kind of like that you can, if you're, if you're really fast, you can like get past it without losing someone. And I was like, hmm, fine. (laughs) But only if it's really hard. And he was like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. It it almost hits harder because it's so difficult because you know that you could have done something to stop it. Hmm. That's true. Yeah. That's fair. I think we'd done quite well as well. We were up to like three or four. We were nearly at the top quite quickly and then the agenda flips and of course we had lots of time to finish the scenario but there's also that sense of the end was in sight and we didn't quite get there yeah Mm -hmm. i don't know whether it's 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 luck or judgment uh, maxine but i think this (laughs) that that ambush i I think that's that's one of the best moments in the campaign and it's so brutally described in the interlude (laughs) yeah i don't know whether it, it it hits just when you think you're nearly safe you're like, okay, right, mm-hmm. we're nearly at the top. This is all going to be fine. And then, boom, just out of nowhere that happens. It reminds me of, of how well-timed the blob is, that the blob always feels like you're, you're maybe going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah. I thought that was really good. It's one of my favourite bits. I was going to ask about awesome. the, the interludes in the campaign guide, but I think we talked about that earlier. Yeah, that's. I think that's one of my favourites too. Because, like you said, it's brutal and... I, I do love me some intense body horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe it's something as well about there's obviously the inevitable death before you've begun playing, but then mm-hmm. this is the second inevitable death, in mm-hmm. quotes. Almost inevitable. It, <laughs> yeah, it's it creates this like, oh my goodness, they're going to get picked off one by one. And it's the same enemy or seems to be the same enemy from the previous scenario the terror from the stars it's like mm-hmm. oh it's hunting us it's not yeah. just uh it's not just a freak occurrence should we move on to the city of the elder things let's do it should we rename this scenario cities of the elder things Maxine? Oh. because it's really three <laughs> maps not one <laughs> sure why this... not <laughs> okay cool thanks great yeah you got Job it done yeah <laughs> this again it feels to me like uh feature of the new model that you can have one scenario but have three different versions and it's this potential of i guess branching design but it's not really fully branching it's branching out at this point and then rejoining afterwards i i like that it's arbitrary which you end up playing more or less but you also can kind of pick up a sense of the wider story like what happened with the shoggoths shoggoths versus elder things yeah yeah so i think oh sorry you were just gonna ask how that came about yeah of course and i'm like (laughs) already beating you to the punch thank you (laughs) 
So yeah, like basically, I think if I remember correctly, and again, it was a while ago, but Jeremy had made one map and it was just City of the Elder Things and that's just what, what it was. And we were working on kind of taking advantage of the of the release model a bit more and like, okay, so, you know, this scenario has three parts and this scenario has two parts and this scenario can be played multiple times. What, what can we add to this scenario? We didn't want to overcomplicate Forbidden Peaks. It's go, you walk up a mountain, you're good. But for this scenario, <laughs> I felt like we could do more. So I was like, Jeremy, what if you made like a bunch of different maps? Because like the, the structure of the map, the, the first map that he made, I think it was, it might have it might have even ended up being version one, but it was like, well, it doesn't have to be that, right? It can be pretty much whatever. So I tasked him with coming up with a couple extra maps, and then he came back with like, so I you know I made a couple extra maps, but then I also made like a bunch of other things change, and I was like, oh, awesome, okay, <laughs> cool, that sounds great. Um, like different encounter sets, there's different like in one of the in one of the versions. The elder things are friendly. Yeah. And then in another version, there's no Shoggoths and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's basically about the three, the elder things, the Shoggoths and the Eidolons and how they all interact. Like what, where do they all come from and what, what, what is their relationship to one another? Mm. That's what this scenario is kind of all about. And then like, I, my contribution, my sole contribution to the scenario is being like, how how are we going to figure out what version they play? And Jeremy wanted it to just be a choice. And I was like, that's cool. But what if, <laughs> like, what if it is a choice for everyone? Um, like yeah. all the NPCs. Yeah. So I came up with that little like chart of like, if these people are alive, then they all tally votes. And it just felt really natural and organic. Mm-hmm. And that, that actually wound up being one of my favorite little bits of the entire campaign it just felt like very very real you know mm, yeah, I, th- yeah. That, that's really effective and it's 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 surprising it's it kind of developed organically like that because it, it, it feels like the kind of thing you could have just given people a straight choice like you say but right. it, it's almost yeah. like you can influence it by working to keep certain people alive or not yeah. uh, but but you know you you sort of pushed in one way by by the people they're with i think that's really cool i really like that it's nice as well because it falls halfway between the partners of these passive characters that don't do anything Mm -hmm. and the other end of the scale being like oh such and such partner's dead we're gonna punish you with a frost or a trauma right which also happens but this (laughs) is like halfway between where it's it does matter who's alive and what how they're voting like it, again, it feels like they're alive rather than it's just a mechanical. This yeah. happens or this doesn't happen. Oh, trust me. If if I had had the space and the opportunity, I would have had so many more moments like that scattered throughout the campaign. Mm-hmm. One mm-hmm. of the toughest things in writing for this campaign was like the entire story text had to be written with the understanding that anyone could be dead. Yeah, of course. Yeah. After the prologue, I couldn't just have a certain character just chime in and be like. Oh, I think this is what's happening. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that was a big challenge. And I wish I, I wish, um, I wish I had had some method for making that that kind of interaction happen even more. You know, if these two people are alive, they have a quick chat. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've we've touched on it, I think, before in a previous interview. But it's the sort of thing where if it was a digital game, 
you could have all of that stuff stored really easily. So if so-and-so dies first, you just don't feed in that line of dialogue. Yeah. But in in a physical game, you you can't tell a player to you know, take a marker and go through the campaign and <laughs> striking out so-and-so's name whenever right. it occurs. Yeah, like Legacy of Dragonhold can, can do that. And Descent <laughs> yeah. can do that. Yeah. yeah. And tell us a little bit about the keys here in City of the Elder Things, this idea of getting pairs of keys. And... Yeah, that that was all Jeremy. Mm-hmm. I can't take any credit for that. He had that that in his mind from, from the get-go. Jeremy's always been very good at looking at, like, what components uh, and what, like, mechanics the game comes with that aren't being fully utilized. Mm-hmm. So he was like, yeah, we've got all these chaos tokens. Um, let's do more um, with them. And I think originally they weren't even called keys. They were, it was just the chaos tokens. And, um, mm. and I was like, well, we did kind of do that in TCU, but it was only with the symbols. If, if we just call them keys here, we can just repeat that same, you know, kind of paradigm. The big difference here was he noticed that there's, you know, two copies of everything that aren't being used in this campaign. Yeah. So yeah, the idea of like discovering pairs, uh, just fit really nicely with that. Yeah. It really scratched an itch for you, didn't it, Peter, in terms of like planning a route, all of that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know what I'm like. I like optimizing. I also really liked the addition of the key tokens in uh, Innsmouth for something that seems so... What's... Is it the word boondongle? <laughs> <laughs> it, it On first blush, it didn't seem like it would add that much, but actually having... The key tokens really felt like it added something here. Not not that using the chaos tokens is isn't isn't fun yeah. as well. I just like having that theme of picking something up and carrying it around. Yeah. Which we nice think about the chaos tokens. Well, we can have like twenty of them. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 And that takes us on finally to the heart of madness, parts one and two. Yeah. Um, my favorite. First up, did did anyone accidentally destroy the world during playtesting? <laughs> I don't think so. Not not that I can remember. There was I think there was maybe a time or two where someone was like, Oh, I'll just go over here and I was like, Whoa, 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 <laughs> Back up. Did you not see the rules text I put on the agenda? Yeah. I'm not gonna lie, I don't remember where that came from. I think it was like so I noticed that like players were just running around and picking up all the seals and I was like, What if um you know, what if you had to like deliver them just like as a mm-hmm. way to add mm-hmm. some extra like an extra step? to the process so it doesn't really it doesn't really make it that much more difficult but it does make it a little bit more time consuming and it makes it so that you have to maybe encounter some enemies that you left behind or whatever along the way yeah and maybe split up the party as well yeah but i didn't just want to say you know the investigators can only carry one at a time so i was like oh man there's got to be some way to make it happen and then i don't remember i don't really remember when i added that but i it was pretty early i was like at, almost as a joke, right? Like half junkie, joking, I just mm. wrote the exact text that you see now on there. Yeah, it's, it even has oops, doesn't it? Uh, I think <laughs> it has think oops re- in the resolution. Yeah. yeah. And on the on the act card, it just says like, yeah, like if ever two activated seals are present in the same location, like an electrostatic detonation, like, uh, yeah. Destroys all life on it Earth. It destroys all life on Earth. <laughs> And I remember writing that and just chuckling to myself, like, this will probably get edited edited later. And um, mm-hmm. people loved it so much that I just kept it. 
It's very like the the the, the scientist in the in the disaster movie or like the Godzilla <laughs> movie. It's like that we can't allow these two McGovins <laughs> yeah to, to be close and- to each other. What is it? It's in um, Ghostbusters, isn't it? If they cross the streams, yeah, across the streams, yeah. I just like having text. I just like when there's text on cards that no one uh, sees coming. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not if they're together you lose. It's it's more <laughs> evocative than yeah, that. yeah. yeah. It's a bit you know more why? Visceral. It makes this. It's a if the last scenario was about kind of optimization of of picking stuff up and moving stuff around. This one's really like that. Mm-hmm. I, I found every time I've played it, it's been a let's plan kind of seven or eight turns in advance kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we even had that, Peter, didn't we? Where we were like, have we got enough time to get one more? I think we can get one more. Mm-hmm. And we were ended up almost doing the kind of classic counting actions. Mm. Okay, you're gonna. it's going to take you three to get there and then pick it up. Can you pass that test? Yeah, it's absolutely that. The, the, the layout of the map also messes with my head in, in a weird way that, Locations that are quite far apart can actually be quite close together. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think the maximum number of locations away one thing can be from another is like four. Yeah, mm. it's a very like three dimensional map almost. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like you're in a sort of amphitheater or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You can get from one tier to another really quickly. Way back when you told us that when you design scenarios sometimes you just have a load of maps in mind Mm -hmm. i think it was for Mm -hmm. dunwich right like what about all of them in a line yeah it feels like the map design in edge of the earth is quite reminiscent of that in that there are some really striking maps like this one with the spokes and rings yeah absolutely this was one of those scenarios where and it's i don't do this too often but every now and then i'll just take a bunch of blank cards and just arrange them on a table Mm -hmm. and just move them around shift them around and like See if I can come up with something that that looks cool, like visually. And so I was like, okay, well, there's a lot of like five pointed stars in this in this uh, campaign. Like, there's the snow graves are five pointed stars. The elder things, their heads are basically five pointed stars. So I was like, mm-hmm. what if I just arrange them like that? So I did that, and then I was like, okay, so now I have five straight lines. That's not very good, right? But then I thought to myself, and I'm like, well, what if you could like go around, you know? And it was um. It was also very reminiscent of, like... It reminded me of, like, a space station. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it reminded me of a space station. Oh, you know what? Because, um... Wow, I'm only just now realizing why it reminds me of a space station. <laughs> the Aliens vs. Predator card game had a game mode where you made, like, a spokes and wheel sort of situation. It mm. The movement didn't work the same way, though. It was just up and down the line like adjacency, and then if there were two copies of the same location, they were considered to be the same location. That's how locations okay. worked in that game. Interesting. Yeah, so you could move from from spoke to spoke by being present in a location where there's multiple copies. But otherwise, it was just straight lines. So yeah, I might have had that in the back of my head without realizing it. <laughs> mm, interesting. Peek behind the curtain there. Yeah. I, I played a lot of Aliens vs. Predator growing up. Hmm. That I mean, there is something kind of. It, it is like ancient facility, space station style. Yeah, I completely get that vibe from it. The, I think I often end up sort of sprinting up a spoke to get to one place with a, a whole pile of enemies chasing me, and it does <laughs> feel a bit like pounding the corridors of some science facility or you know space station or something like that. Yeah, I can see it. 
Can you tell us a bit more about the ancient one that we face here as well? Your design notes touch on how you wanted the Mirage to be the antagonist rather than, I don't know, an Elder Things or something like that. Yeah. Rereading Mountains of Madness before working on this, it it was pretty clear to me that like the Elder Things aren't really an enemy mm. so much as they are just like us. Um, they're just like a race of beings that are intelligent, that are, you know, just living on Earth. And they just happen to, to get wiped out slash frozen. And so I wanted them to appear, obviously, and they do appear as enemies, but they're not like the primary antagonist. Rereading Mountains of Madness, it was like, okay, there's these Shoggoths down there that like rose up against their enslavers. And, but then there's something else. There's something that Danforth sees as they're mm. escaping. And it's kind of not stated what it is. Like, it's kind of maybe inferred that it's just like the Shoggoth itself, like the memory of the Shoggoth that they encountered. It's also kind of like suggested that it's something more like there's some dark presence in the mountain, Mm. like in the heart of the mountains that is worse than all of those things. Um, But it's never really defined. And in other Arkham games, we've we've sort of defined it as just like this, this darkness, this, this like presence. But we've never really shown it or said what it was up front. Mm. So this this campaign sort of sought to define it a little bit more while still leaving it pretty ambiguous. So, like, it doesn't have a name. It's not, like, you know, Azathoth or whatever. Um, it's just called the Nameless Madness. But the idea is that it's this it's this sort of entity made up of... It's not even really an entity. It's, it's like, a parallel plane, almost, that is constrained within this facility and it's leaking out all throughout Antarctica, and that's how the Eidolons come about. They're just, like, parts of it that are, like, leaking mm-hmm. out of this facility. And they're going to keep leaking out more and more and more until you either seal it shut and destroy it or, you know, do some other more drastic measure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I think I found it very satisfying that it's, like you say, nameless and it mm. operates in a different way. I obviously appreciate the part of the Arkham Files that's about taking on the Great Old Ones with a shotgun and that part of it, and that's fun too. But to face an ancient one where it's just spreading and leaking, as you say, yeah. and we've already had, it's reminding me of bits of flavour throughout the campaign of, you know, splotches of ink or stains are just, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of mucky, isn't it, in terms of how it's broken out. Yeah, and like my headcanon for what is going on in like Fatal Mirage and a lot of the other bits of story that pop up from time to time is it's it's learning about us as much as we are learning about it. It wants to know what makes us tick. It wants to know who we are and it wants to learn more. And that's like mm-hmm. it, why it wants to get out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That and I think one of the endings as well both felt the most kind of, even though it's set in uh, Antarctica, felt the most thing like the thing. Um, this idea it could impersonate people, yeah, um, or it can it can overtake people, or it's spreading. It's very in in infectious alien. <laughs> yeah, yeah, less 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 like impersonating and more like creating false memories and like yeah. false environments that you walk into 
And that's very much like the Mist um, TV show. If you've ever yeah. seen that. Yeah. How are you finding the challenge of creating finale bosses across <laughs> oh, multiple gosh. campaigns? It's very difficult. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult because to a certain extent, there's no combination of numbers that a player can't overcome mm. with with some, you know, difficulty. Like, it, I, like, it's not enough to just make an enemy that's just big. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's got to be... It's got to be unique and novel in its own way. And I think I think we've gotten better at that over time. I think in the early days of Arkham, they were just kind of big monsters. And then like with Haster, it was like the version of Haster that I like the most is the one that you set aside and you have to <laughs> yeah. recreate the parts of Act 2 to like damage it. Like I thought that that was really clever. But then like, but then Yig's just a big dude. And then... <laughs> Yeah, and then Azathoth is cool because you never actually fight it. You can't fight Azathoth. It's just kind of there yeah. and accumulates doom. So yeah, I think we've gotten better at that over time. And I think like the two in the Dream Eaters, the two ancient ones yeah. in that in that campaign, Spider. Yeah, those are like the pinnacle almost of that philosophy. Yeah, that like ancient ones should feel different and unique and memorable and like what what is even happening? You know what I mean? I remember you told us you were so excited when you came up with the idea for uh, like Nacha. You just ran through <laughs> to, the, to an adjacent office. Look at this. Yeah. Look at this. I ran into the art department. I was like, "Okay, hear me out." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, with this one, same thing. I wanted it to feel like it's growing, um, like it's expanding, mm -hmm. and I didn't want it to feel like you could really defeat it. You can kind of just halt its growth. Except you can't even do that. You can kind of just escape it. That's really all you can do is run yeah. from it. Yeah. Yeah. That, the, the, a cyclopean ramp. Yeah. Titanic the ramp. Finale yeah. is so good here. <laughs> just it, it captures that chase feeling as everything's about to explode. Yeah. Mm. I had to have my Super Metroid moment. I had to. <laughs> always. I always have to have my Super Metroid moment. Are you pleased with Nameless Madness then? As a as a different form of final fight. Yeah, I am. It was it was a challenge because it was hard to figure out how exactly at what rate it comes out and how uh, how to do it. I think the the part that made it all click was when I realized I had enough space in the box to have fifteen copies of it. <laughs> yeah. That's what made it click. I was like, what's going to make this? Because I think it originally it just had the one copy and it would just kind of like move around and whatever. It was pretty easy to avoid. And like at a certain point, I was like, oh, man, what's there's got to be some way to make this more memorable. And having a single ancient one split across 15 cards, that's pretty memorable just conceptually, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's really when it is. started to click. This does actually lead us neatly to the Scarlet Keys as well. Yeah. Will there be an ancient one in the Scarlet Keys? <laughs> I imagine you can't answer that. And if uh, there is, yeah. any hints as to what kind of tech we should pack for the climactic <laughs> finale of Scarlet Keys? If there um, is one. <laughs> uh, what I will say, I won't say that there is an ancient one. There is a, there is a boss, because there's always going to be a boss of some kind. Mm -hmm. What the nature of that boss is, I'll leave that for you to discover um <laughs> there you. is a new mechanic in the scarlet keys box that is very like central to the campaign mm. it shows up in 
not every scenario, but most scenarios, like over half. And when you get to uh, said boss, that mechanic is uh, central to that as well. Ooh. And that's what that's what sets it apart from other bosses. Um, so it's but it's cool because we we found a way to make it like, oh, wow, we flipped this mechanic on its head and simultaneously made a unique boss fight at the same time. Mm, so I hope players like it. Yeah. That's exciting. I always love a boss when it's like a final exam on what you've yeah. learned on the rest of the campaign. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's what I want as well. To a certain extent, the entirety of the finale is like that. Awesome. It's exciting. And yeah. I think I'm right in thinking the first and last scenario were kind of locked in. Yes. In Scarlet Keys. Yeah, cool. Yeah. The first scenario, you always have to play. And it's kind of a, it's almost a tutorial for some of the new mechanics in the Scarlet Keys, but it's also just a nice, meaty, long scenario. That cool. you will see us play through some of on Wednesday if you join us for our live stream. Can't wait. And then the finale is you always play the finale and you either play it because you ran out of time. So you just get shunted over to it or because you took it upon yourself to go to the place where the finale is. Okay. Yeah. Very Interesting. Well, we've sort of started talking about Scarlet Keys here. Yeah. Any final thoughts about Edge of the Earth before we wrap that up from me or maxine from both of you (laughs) i'm just really happy that the partner aspect of the campaign like seemed to hit well with players Mm -hmm. it was the first time we've done a cast that large in a campaign and i was a bit worried about it because usually we have one or two characters and kind of that's it you know maybe three or four side characters yeah Yeah, one of them betrays you (laughs) It was the first time we've done a cast quite that large that I wanted players to get attached to. And I'm really mm. glad it I'm I'm really glad that players responded well to it because Scarlet Key is it's very different because they don't follow you. In fact, it's very different conceptually. It's almost like you go to one place and you interact with a cast of characters there, and then you go to a different place and interact with a different cast of characters. So there's an even mm-hmm. bigger cast of characters in the Scarlet Keys, but they're spread across they don't like follow you as much. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Except for the ones that do. <laughs> but at a certain point, uh, it all sort of comes together. Mm-hmm. So I hope the players like that aspect of it. I, I think that, that that's that's interesting to hear, Maxine. I think the the innovation that you've been able to do with Edge of the Earth based on how it's distributed now, let you do some stuff that would have been more difficult to shoehorn into the older model. Yeah. Like the structure of the campaign is still it's still largely a linear campaign. You've got some some loops and you can skip some scenarios. But it still feels like that the path is right. broadly laid out. So I'm excited to see how that if if we get a bit of choice in that and yeah, like you've hinted at there, <laughs> we can attack this the, the finale ahead of time. Yeah. We're kinda of making sense. I wanna see people go straight to the finale. <laughs> do it. it's the speed speed, speed run. run yeah, yeah. Do, the, run. do the prologue walk around kill some time and then go straight to the finale do it yeah <laughs> it'll go well i promise yeah uh, i guess last thing for me on edge of the earth is it feels like a really coherent like intense experience you know the antarctic vibe comes across for me really strongly and i just you know, I know I've just been playing it recently so it's front and center <laughs> of my of my mind but that idea of the the maps feel really immersive it feels really mm. involved 
and yeah, I think revisiting the partners as well, they come across really strongly still. The, the coherence, yeah, that, that's what I would say as well. It it it, it feels it feels this similar across the different scenarios. Mm-hmm. Like the kind of challenges you're facing, it feels like you're you're in the same place, on the same journey, doing the same things. Nice. And it's it's funny, I think we've talked about this before, Peter, haven't we? We both wondered, would that feel then samey or not be a pleasant experience? But actually, I think it's the opposite, where it feels, it adds like a level of intensity. You're not trying to make each new Mythos pack be something different, mm. because you don't need to. It's like, no, we can have a really big experience in one place, and that's yeah. part of what this box is offering. Which is that very different from the Scarlet Keys. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I thought you'd say. <laughs> so we've started talking about the Scarlet Keys here already, but let's just do another spoiler warning for people who are avoiding Scarlet Keys stuff. We're going to dive in and talk a little bit more about the Scarlet Keys and also the tie-in short story collection Secrets in Scarlet in which you can find a story by one MJ Newman (laughs) so yeah I guess that that's part of why we're talking to you about it not just asking you about it for no reason (laughs) let's start with Scarlet Keys what's on the mood board that's what we always ask you yeah uh it's funny coming off you know the heels a couple cycles ago of the Innsmouth conspiracy but I think even more than that cycle this campaign deals primarily with, you know, conspiracies and secret societies and organi- shady organizations, like sort of manipulating events from the shadows and, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, a global conspiracy and like government, like a, a shadowy government agency who is responsible for managing these kinds of things, mm-hmm. which we've mm-hmm. seen like hints of, like there's, there's the quote G-men who show up in the blob scenario at the start. Yeah. And there's the agency characters that show up in the Innsmouth conspiracy. But this is mm. a level beyond that. We even saw with some of the promotional tweets for announcing the Scarlet Keys, what seemed like dossiers and redacted information and communication between, it seemed like, people who were part of this government organization as well. Yeah, yeah. And you will learn more about those characters as you play through the campaign or as you read through the Secrets in Scarlet anthology, because a lot of those characters show up in there as well. Uh, what, our next question is normally, what book should I read or film should I watch <laughs> to get me in the mood? Maybe discounting Secrets in Scarlet. Are there <laughs> other things that were sort of touchstones for you to yeah. get you in the mood? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, X-Files was a big one Uh, Mm -hmm. the scp foundation which if you've never heard of that is a series of fan fiction style Mm. stories that have been like assembled on a particular website where you can read them all so they're all different Mm -hmm. authors no one really owns them they're just kind of like out there and they've grown into this big network of stories um it's very cool scp stands for secure contain protect so it's like finding objects or creatures of paranormal nature and finding a way to contain them and there's a certain there's certain stories in that uh in in that uh, scp network of stories that uh were huge sources of inspiration for me if you if you were going to read one i would read the all of these stories revolving around the anti-memetics department 
Um, that's a good oh, one. Oh, interesting. Okay. There's, I mean, there's thousands of those, Frank. So make a start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, okay. the video game Control. I was going. I was about to say Control. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, interestingly enough, I think a lot of people who play Control have already spotted quite an uh, <laughs> an on the nose reference to a it in the player homage, expansion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What can I say? Yeah. <laughs> I wear my inspirations on my sleeve. I always have. Your story in Secrets in Scarlet. Maxine, yeah. cross, crossing stars. One. Yes. I, what we've tried, we'll, we'll, we'll try and keep any conclusions of the story vague. I mean, listeners will have heard we interviewed uh, some of the other authors from the anthology mm-hmm. probably a week or two ago, depending when when Frank's got a chance to put everything together. <laughs> Let's say two weeks. Let's say two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we can talk the general kind of themes of the story without trying to give away too much. Because yeah, I know in any kind of conspiracy or or twisty media like this, the revelation is part of the fun. What was the top-level pitch for your story, and why might fans of the card game particularly enjoy it? So, high-level pitch is we have this band of ancient would-be conquerors and warriors searching for a artifact of great power. And the story revolves around the relationships between those various characters, the one main character in particular, uh, her desires, what she's after, why she's after it. And as they get deeper and deeper into this, this place that they've ventured to, they start to realize the, uh, the gravity of their situation. So very, very much an Arkham. It's it's almost an Arkham scenario in story form, in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then there's an element of it being a story within a story. So I, but I won't, exp- I won't get into that. <laughs> it's set in North Africa, in the desert. What prompted you setting it there and choosing that time period? Yeah. So actually, this, um, like, like some of the, not all, but some of the stories in Secret of Scarlet, um, this one ties very directly into the plot of one of the scenarios in in the Scarlet Keys. Specifically, it's a scenario called Dead Heat, which is also set in Marrakesh. Okay. So that's that's why this is set where it's set, because it's it is basically a prologue to that scenario. This is it. I'm nodding. Yeah, yeah. I'm a bit worried we're gonna go into that pit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nothing nice nothing nice happens down there, does it? No. It's interesting. This this is a tangential question, I guess, Maxine. But mm-hmm. if you could advocate for someone to read the anthology in a particular way alongside the campaign, mm. would you say that they should read it all through before they start, or pick uh, the stories that match up with particular scenarios? Ooh, I don't know. That's tough. It's kind of it's kind of hard to say what the best would be. It's it's kind of like. What order do you consume Star Wars content in, right? Because <laughs> they're well, all over the place, timeline-wise. Obviously, you have to start with episode one and then work your way through them. That's, I mean, maybe. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so like, it's like, you know, watching Andor right now, right? Which is very much, obviously, a backstory to the character of Cassie and Andor, who appears in Rogue One, which came out years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's like, do I watch... If I haven't seen Rogue One, do I watch Andor first? Or do I watch Rogue One and then watch Andor? And does it matter? And I, I would I would say it probably doesn't matter too much. Like, I don't think there's an optimal viewing order. If you watch Andor first, then 
when you go into Rogue One, you already know who that character is, and that's cool. But when you watch Rogue One first, and then you go back and watch Andor, it's like, all right, now I'm getting all this backstory about why he was the way he was in Rogue One. Interesting. Yeah, and it's kind of like that with this, too. If you read Secrets in Scarlet first, like all of it first, then when those characters show up in the Scarlet Keys, you'll already kind of have some knowledge of who they are, what their personality is like, and that's that's cool. That'll give you an, a unique experience. If you play the if you play the game first, you'll get the experience that I kind of imagine most players will get, which is learning about these characters like immediately for the first time. And then if you go back and read Secrets and Scarlet after that, there's nothing wrong with that. Now you just get some cool backstory. None of the stories in Secret and Sar- Secrets and Scarlet spoil anything that happens in the Scarlet Keys. You might just get some unique perspective that you wouldn't otherwise have. That's that's really interesting to hear. Yeah, I, it's, it's. I mean, we've had to read some of it to, to interview people, but I'm sort of mm-hmm. tempted to put it down, experience the campaign, and then go back mm. and pick it up before a, a second playthrough. Sure. So I can kind of tie things together. But I think one of the things that was interesting about the story of yours we read was in terms of your familiarity with the characters and how they're going to be used, it was quite confident in terms of how people are characterised and how it kind of ties together. Mm. Was that a bit of an advantage, being the person writing the scenario and the person who's sort of sitting alongside the lawmasters at FFG? (laughs) Well, yes and no. So, like, we... First of all, we gave all of the authors as much reference material as we possibly could... Um, So they all had access to the entirety of the Scarlet Keys campaign guide. So they could see... They've been very complimentary about the amount of information they got. Oh, that's good. That's good. (laughs) That's really good. Um, Yeah, so they were able to see, like, the dialogue that was written from these characters, their personalities, and, like, they could sort of craft their narrative around that. So I don't think I had, like, a tremendous advantage. Also, because of the nature of the story that I'm telling, it's set way, way in the past. Mm-hmm. All of the characters that show up in like in that past section, you know, it's set like in like 1600s. So obviously those characters aren't around anymore. Mm-hmm. So I could kind of start fresh with those characters and kind of create a new personality for them. So yeah, it was maybe not as much of an advantage as you might suspect. I did get to read all of the pitches as they came in and like make notes. And that was really cool. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, because I was able, because like, I wanted to make sure that all those pitches line up with what I have written. You know what I mean? And yeah. in a few instances, I I even had to like go in and be like, oh, actually, this is you know contradictory to what I wrote over here. Can you change it to be? Uh, and it, usually, it's very mild detail. Mm-hmm. But it was it was great. Like all of the authors were super receptive to that, and I think in the end, we've come up with a a product, a tie in product that is like scarily accurate <laughs> yeah as you develop and add things to the characters we, we, we talked to one of the other authors about this like some mm-hmm. of the other franchises they work with uh have got you know very long and very very detailed histories yeah you know if you're working with marvel you've got what like a right. century of information <laughs> yeah. that's out there yeah. as you're sitting developing these characters is someone there in FFG with a big red pen updating their story bible? Is it the kind of is this a setting that's developing, driven mm-hmm. by the things you're writing? 
Yeah, definitely. There's a... Within the Arkham story group, there's a level of understanding that we're trying to make things as consistent as possible across all these different products. And we do have a... What what I would call a story Bible that's filled with all kinds of details for different characters, different places, different organizations. And that's all stuff that we provide to to authors in my head it's it's a i'm 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 sure it's probably just a wiki but in my head it's like a a big leather bound (laughs) novel just like an enormous yeah (laughs) (laughs) needs like four flunkies to carry it (laughs) (laughs) yeah the plus side with arkham is we only have so much already written so there is a lot of wiggle room there it's not Mm -hmm. like it's not like as you say it's not like Marvel or Star Wars where there's so much already written and known about these characters that it has to like conform for the most part a lot of what's written about these characters is maybe a paragraph a few paragraphs at most you mentioned seeing the other authors pitches Mm -hmm. at what point did you know that you were going to be writing a story for Secrets and Scarlet and was there any jostling for wanting to make sure you could write about a certain character <laughs> or seeing someone pitch to write about a character that you really wanted to write about did any so, of that sort of thing occur yeah so actually i i went through the same process that every author every other author had to go through um i didn't mm-hmm. get any like you know special treatment uh it wasn't like oh well you're just gonna write something it's fine um <laughs> I, I had to send in pitches just like anyone else and uh it was lottie's job um, who is the editor on the book to figure out which pitch each, cause every, every author submitted two to three pitches, right? Mm-hmm. Um, including myself. And, uh, so it was her job to go through those pitches and decide, uh, which stories she wanted to be in the book and who was going to write which story. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I actually didn't have anything to do with that, that particular process. I submitted my pitches for the stories that I wanted to tell. Two of which ended up being very similar stories that showed up from other uh, pitches, oh, wow. which is great. Because uh, I think one of the first things that I drew up the one the one point that I did have that was different was having this deep knowledge about the campaign. Um, Lottie asked me like, "What what kinds of what are what are some examples of stories that you'd like to tell?" And I came up with like maybe ten that I thought were like. Oh, these would be a blast. Like these are these are the stories that I think I would love to see. And some of those basically made it in with their own unique twist as the author, you know, brought those characters to life. And then some of them kind of just didn't as the authors took uh took a character or a plot point that I did not expect and turned that into an entire short story and I thought that was really cool. And how did you find the switch more generally from writing as a designer? I know you've done other fiction writing already, but then actually being still working in an IP that's your day job, (laughs) but as a prose author rather than as a designer. It was very different. Yeah, it was very weird. I'm so used to in Arkham writing in this sort of game writing Mm. headspace where uh, it's not just the tense and it's, it's present tense second person, which is weird, but it's not just that. It's also like wanting to deliver information very concisely while still having Mm -hmm. elaborate enough language that it sounds like good prose, but Mm -hmm. also isn't so convoluted prose that like, like I want players to be able to read it out loud. 
and not yeah. stumble over and the words. Stumble. Yeah. 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 So it's really tough. Like game writing is freaking hard, man. But going into prose writing, going into like long form writing for this, it was very different. And I was able to kind of stretch those legs, which is cool. And um, like you said, I have written that way many times before, but never in Arkham. So that was very unique, very different. And it's very different, especially from Dark Drifters, which if you've read that, it has a very specific narrative style that um, yeah. is not shared by this, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think that one of the things that jumped out for me about your story is the confidence with which you're doing this entwined narrative and this past setting and there's a little bit in the present as well and it's kind of jumping between them and it feels like the kind of thing you exactly couldn't do in the card game oh yeah because it's all in one time and place normally so yeah it feels very fitting that the short story you've chosen to write is very much a short story that can jump around in time and place yeah that sort of thing yeah and with with one exactly one exception in arkham you only ever receive the information the investigators would know. You know what I mean? There's no omniscient mm-hmm. narrator. There's no, like, jumping to a villain's perspective. The only time that ever happens is in the Circle Undone at the very beginning. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And it happens twice. It happens once when you take control of the prologue characters who aren't the investigators, and once during the resolution of that scenario of the prologue where you get to hear this conversation between Joseph Meyer and Carl Sanford. Yeah. That's it. That's the only time in the entirety of the card game that I can remember in which you get a perspective that isn't the investigators. But with this story, it jumps between a couple of different perspectives. And that was very, very different, too. So we did want to ask you a bit more about how your story ties into the themes of the upcoming cycle. I think you've you've touched on it quite a bit already, what those themes are. I'm going to read a little bit from the story, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, go for it. In every era, there are conspiracy theories regarding those in true control of society, the masterminds making puppets of us all, the Illuminati or what have you. It's mostly baloney, of course, but powerful people have risen in secret before. I'm not going to say who's saying that. (laughs) That would be a spoiler. (laughs) I'm not going to say who they're saying it to. No, sorry, I'm just (laughs) getting carried away. But, But that, to me, really... The, I'm so interested in the idea of secret societies, conspiracies mm. as a card game thing, like how that yeah. works for us as investigators. And I think the thing that really drew me in with your story was not just the sense of that existing now at the time of present, but also across time. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I guess there's all of that in the mix as well, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, for sure. And like the character who's saying that, I'm not going to say who it is, but the character who's saying that is 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 a skeptic. But the truth of the the reality of the situation is she's more right than she thinks she is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In real life, it's probably mostly baloney, but in Arkham, not so much. And that, yeah, it's definitely explored a lot. Like one thing that's explored a lot in the campaign that's really cool that I like is you get to see in some instances how these, how this secret society, how this coterie has affected the world wow. how they have really put their roots in certain places and and kind of manipulated events to their advantage it's not just paranormal stuff it's also um they just they're powerful people the development of society or the changing of a community yeah that sort of thing yeah and like i would say the big theme 
of the Scarlet Keys, if I had to narrow it down to a single phrase, which was actually written down very much at, on my like list of themes when I pitched the story, was uh, who is worthy to wield power? Wow. And is is humanity in any way, shape, or form worthy? You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Th- that's interesting when we think about your story as well. I would say the point of view character who's on that kind of expedition down mm-hmm. that while I don't know that they feel like they might have an honorable goal, but I don't think they're necessarily too sympathetic. They no, no. <laughs> angrily to their, to their, to their colleagues. Uh, and while it, it's kind of clear what their, their um, agenda is, mm-hmm. um, you don't necessarily think that they're going to be using the, the power they, they, claim um uh, judiciously yeah no definitely like harasa is very much not a character you're meant to relate to per se Mm. you can maybe kind of get a sense for her ambition and why that ambition came to came to fruition but like yeah she's a very she was a very fun character to write because she's very unapologetic (laughs) <laughs> yes, about who she apologetic. is yeah yeah she has a pet lion listeners <laughs> yeah she has a, a sense pet lion. of kind of where she's at on the kooky scale yeah she's got a pet lion <laughs> Khalid. who she's probably friendlier with than a lot of the other humans in the story yeah so. pretty much yeah. yeah um the character who you're supposed to re- relate to in the story is the character who says that quote that you mentioned that's the character who mm. she's like the audience substitute right She's the one yeah. listening to the story going like, really? And we have the vibe from her slightly like also an investigator substitute. So she's an academic, but mm-hmm. she's involved in a slightly strange field mm-hmm. and has maybe, you know, trying to make her big break, which reminds me of, you know, um, Norman being laughed out of yeah. the Academy for saying that six stars have disappeared and that sort of thing. There's that overlap for some Arkham investigators between the paranormal the academic for and sure more esoteric theories and things like that there, there there's a common thread among characters in the arkham setting uh, investigators specifically that the closer you get to the mythos the more detached from normal reality you become mm. the more estranged from your friends and family the more the more disruptive it is to your your life and your career and all of that stuff and the more the more you become like on the fringes of society i saw a great thread on twitter about how the 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 cosmic horror it's not that it's something uh you can't understand it's not something incomprehensible it's it's when you get a fraction of understanding because then you understand the insignificance yes and that that exactly mirrors what you were just saying you know the more you understand actually the less you're able to relate to everything else yeah and like the more you realize that everything you know is is you know a facade mm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's the true detective yeah thing like, I feel like <laughs> they nail that really well in that show yeah in the first season when you said who's worthy to wield power and questioning whether that was humanity that reminded me of what you were saying earlier when we we're talking about big boss and antagonist at the end of scarlet keys mm-hmm. and that idea of the theme that's coming across for me here is corruption within humanity as well Mm -hmm. and 
so far we've thought broadly speaking in Arkham that humans are good and you know they're trying to stop great evils from happening certainly mm-hmm. the investigators we play and it's starting to feel like maybe that's not going to be the case in Scarlet Keys. I would say Scarlet Keys more than any other campaign has the the widest range of character motivations. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that was very important that I didn't want the various factions to feel really one note. I think all throughout Arkham, there have been human characters who are bad. There's the cultists, yeah. right? There's the yeah. people who side, not side with the ancient ones so much as are enraptured by it and yeah. like don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Possessed or, or, or they're misguided, you know, like every single mm-hmm. character in TCU. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like they have, yeah. they have good, they have good intentions, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions, etc. Um, the characters in Scarlet Keys are a lot more three-dimensional, I think. Uh, or at least that's the hope. Like, because another running sub-theme in Scarlet Keys is, like, figuring out who to trust and who not to trust. Mm. And that's that's entirely up to the player. And there's certain characters you can side with who maybe aren't great people, but you side with them anyway because they're useful and <laughs> vice versa. So we'll see what happens. There's There's a lot Ooh. more story roots in this one, I think, than in any other campaign. We will indeed see what happens. I'm really excited. It should be out <laughs> soon. soon. Peter, is there anything else you'd like to ask before we wrap this up? No, I, I guess I'll just we'll get our thinking caps on about how we're going to approach the next campaign. Um, if if there's what, what's what's our route? How we're going to organise all the scenarios to talk to Maxine <laughs> about next time? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I encourage players the first time they play through the Scarlet Keys to just kind of go with their whims. Yeah, see where the wind takes you, and and then maybe the next time you play, plan out your route. You know, so enticing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Maxine. Thanks for joining us and being so generous with your time. Again, we really appreciate it, and I know that listeners really appreciate it as well. The lead designer of the game put so much. (laughs) time into explaining it and talking about it so yeah thank you it's always really great to have you on again thank you so much and you guys should um you guys should have duke on and then, <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's on the list it, the, the, just above above the <laughs> maxine questions in that document there's jeremy questions and duke questions <laughs> we need to add a section for nick questions yeah, now yeah well. that guy <laughs> the worst yeah <laughs> <laughs> Maxine, if people want to read stuff you've written or generally follow you more, is there anything you'd like to hype yeah. that they should go and check out? Yeah, you can check out my website. It's www.bewaretheblackcat.com. You can also check out my Twitter. It's um, at Natsunoyoru, which is N-A-T-S-U-N-O-Y-O-R-U. I did not know I would be giving that... <laughs> That username out a lot when I made it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you can check out what I'm working on there. I'm working on volume two of my book series, Dark Drifters, which uh, maybe I'll have sometime this century. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I've got other things in the works. Amazing. Well, thanks so much. And people can get in touch with the podcast. We're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com and we're drawn to the flame on all of the social medias. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.
That's a good clap. Hello! <laughs> you're <laughs> listening to Drunk... <laughs> Wow! Straight. I didn't know you were going that. right into it. I didn't realize. Yeah. <laughs> We've got our first blue. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>